Spring turkey season is upon us, and don't be caught out in the woods without having Onyx Hunt on your phone. One feature Onyx has that is often overlooked for turkey hunting is their recent imagery filter with their elite memberships. This imagery is updated week to week, and it comes in extremely handy, especially when you're trying to find these gobble zones where these turkeys will go out in a high spot on a fresh clear cut and strut around all day long. Actually, I was just looking at on Onyx where, where the timber company just came into Andrew's club and did a very small clear cut along this creek, and I can see the high spots on the topographical map, but also I can see exactly where they mulch, and those are going to be hot spots for finding gobblers, especially mid-morning after they get off their hens, getting up on these little high spots in this fresh, small clear cut along the creek and strutting and gobbling all day long. If you want to give Onyx a try, you can actually download it for free, try it for seven days, and if you decide to purchase, you can use the promo code SOUTHERN and save on your premium and elite memberships. So go into this turkey season, know where you stand with Onyx. If you're looking to throw some optics on your turkey gun this spring, look no further than the Vortex Defender ST. This is the red dot we're going to be running this season. We're excited about it. This thing's built like a tank, super lightweight, super long battery life, everything you need in a good turkey red dot. And if you want to get a discount on that red dot or any other Vortex Optic, go to eurooptic.com and use the code SGN10 to get a discount. That's eurooptic.com, code SGN10. If you live in the Gulf Coast region, you need to find yourself at the EcoWild Expo May 10th through the 12th in Mobile. It is the premier outdoor expo for the Gulf Coast region, and we're going to be there. We're going to have a booth. We're super excited about it. Can't wait to meet you guys that live down there. We absolutely love the Gulf Coast region, so to be a part of this show, we're super excited about. We're going to have past podcast guests there at our booth for you to talk to, guys who are relevant for your area, who you can talk to. You can pick their brain. You can joke with them, laugh with them, tell them your story, whatever you want to do. It's going to be a awesome time. We're already working on some past podcast guests, but hey, if you live in this area and you have a suggestion for someone you want to see at that show, write in and we'll see if we can get them. There's going to be all kinds of exhibitors at the show that are focused on hunting, fishing, conservation, and recreation. There's going to be activities for the whole family there. They got axe throwing, archery. They're going to have our podcast booth. And then for the kids, they got touch tanks, a honeybee exhibition, a raptor show, kids fishing tank, BB gun range, and a butterfly house. So you're going to love it. Your kids are going to love it. It's going to be an awesome time. So head on over to ecowildexpo.com to get more information on the show and to go ahead and grab your tickets. And hey, mark it on your calendar. May 10th through the 12th. Be there. We want to see you. And we're excited to talk to you. So we'll see you at the EcoWild Expo this May 10th through the 12th at the Mobile Convention Center in Mobile, Alabama. All right, guys. And today we have Josh Watts on the phone. Josh, how you doing, brother? Pretty good, man. How about you? Doing excellent, man. I'm glad you uh, could make a little time for me today and talk. Uh, I know Andrew, unfortunately, wasn't able to make this episode, but we're still going to have a great time. Oh, now, yeah. now, the fun thing about this episode, guys, this is our fourth episode, and this is going to be all about elk. This is the, the Mac Daddy of them all. This is what everyone dreams about going hunting. Uh, I mean, whether you grew up you know, hunting or getting into it late, you know, this is pretty much everybody's dream hunting. You know, Josh, we're going to talk today, you know, about how, you know, you were able to make it happen and how the, you know, the average guy, especially in the Southeast, can make that hunt happen, especially as often as you've been able to go out there. But uh, before we jump into that, Josh, how about you give us a little bit of background about you, you know, you know, first of all, where you're from, maybe what you do for a living, and really what got you interested in hunting out West? All right. Well, uh, as, as uh, Jacob said, my name is Josh Watts. Uh, I work on an offshore oil production platform for 14 days of of the month and then the other 14 i've got off so that gives me a little more free time than most um but uh in in the meantime in that free time i love to hunt and uh you know growing up my uncle and a lot of his friends would go out west every year and 
man, I, I saw that and I'm like, one day I'm going to do that. And then I got older and graduated from high school and they quit going and I didn't know anybody that was going and I started working and, you know, couldn't really put the time to do it. And then finally one day I said, man, you always wanted to go elk hunting and you're not going to get any younger. It's time to start. So I started uh, checking into it and uh, just made it happen. I mean, I, I found a way to, you know, find the gear I needed, find the time I needed, the money I needed, you know, ran old money throughout the year to, to make it happen. And uh, once you go out there, it gets in your blood, man. So I've been going out there for one reason or another since 2012. So I've been out six different trips and uh, planning on going out there this year for antelope if I draw a tag and just constantly planning the next hunt. Well, that's awesome. I mean, that's something that's kind of carried over from each episode that we've had so far is, you know, reason going out there and once you do it once, it's in your blood, you get addicted to it, get bitten by the bug. Uh, that's right. So, I mean, guys, for, you know, that's a that's a warning to everybody. You know, you're going to enjoy it. I mean, you're going to have a good time. And, again, that's this whole point of this series is kind of to shorten that learning curve for everybody to really help you go out there and have a little bit more confidence of what you're doing, what you're taking with you, and what you're getting yourself really into and also be able to take some buddies with you to really have a great time and make some memories that will last you a lifetime. But, Josh, you know, you know, you can kind of talk about a little bit about where you're from and kind of your reason for going out west, but, you know, that, what was the defining moment that really made you like we're doing, like I'm doing this right now? Like, it, was it just, you know, like you said, like, you know, you're not going to get any younger, or was it just like something else happened in your life that you're like, we, we got, I got to do this, I have to do this? Well, uh, you know, I think what happened in, in Mississippi, most people hunt a deer lease. And when I got to putting everything together and pricing everything, what I was paying to hunt a deer lease every year, I could go out west and hunt something different. And that just kind of hit me. It's like, man, I've got tons of public land around me that I can hunt a deer on. Um, I've got family land that I can hunt a deer on. I can take the money that I'm putting into a lease that I'm only using three months out of the year, and I can go out west and have a shot at something that, you know, I've never even seen this animal in real life before, and I, I have the opportunity to pack up, get some public land out west, hunt for, you know, a week or so, and have the chance to shoot an elk, mm-hmm. and, you know, for the same cost that I would would pay to hunt whitetails within my home state. There's, there's a lot of uh, opportunities for whitetail, and there's... In Mississippi, there's no opportunity for elk, man. So I decided <laughs> to to put those funds elsewhere and, and start going out there. Yeah, and you're you're totally right about that. And that's that's one thing that you know a lot of people can't wrap their heads around. Uh, which you know the good thing you know if you hunt if you decide to hunt public land down in the south wherever you're from, it frees up a lot of money that you can do a lot of the really cool hunts with. Uh, oh yeah, definitely. Which uh, which is something that you know definitely you know. We all have a kind of a similar aspect on, you know, you, you, Andrew, myself. Um, but, you know, when, when it went out, uh, or when you went out west, what was the first state you hunted for when it came to elk? Uh, first state was Colorado. Okay, well, let's, let's talk about that. That's the, okay. one, that's the one state that everyone hears about for elk is Colorado. Uh, they by far have the largest elk population uh, compared to any other state out west and also have one of the best opportunities when it comes to the over-counter archery tag. Oh, definitely. Now, when you went out there, uh, first explain the whole tag system when it comes to just the over-counter archery tag, and you know, kind of like where, where can what does that allow you to hunt when you go out there? 
so Colorado has a ton of opportunity, man. Um, you can buy an over-the-counter tag for archery and second and third rifle seasons. Um, I, I can't remember how many units they have, but it's a it's more than you'd ever want to want to try to hunt. I mean, uh, and the good thing about it, so coming from the south, Colorado is one of the closest places to drive, and southern Colorado has a lot of public land and it's got a lot of over-the-counter units. So just for opportunity and convenience, Colorado was the choice for, for me. And uh, it and it and I liked it, man. I got out there, and we got into elk, and, uh, you know, it took some adjusting, took some getting used to that style of hunting. But for, you know, for the cost, for the drive time and everything, the opportunity, it, it was just, in my eyes, it was really hard to beat. Okay, awesome. Now, you know, so we kind of talked about the over-the-counter tag uh, that, you know, they kind of offer at Colorado for doing some of those hunts, whether it's archery or, like you said, uh, it was third or fourth rifle season. Is that correct? Uh, second, third rifle season and uh, an archery. Okay, they, perfect. They've also got uh, most of the units that are over-the-counter for that are draw only for muzzleloader and first rifle, mm-hmm. and they actually require preference points. So you have the opportunity to hunt uh beforehand before the muzzleloader guys get in the woods uh you can hunt the same unit and they're having to draw this tag off the preference points and you get to hunt it over the counter so you know you've got guys that are banking points for a couple years to hunt the same unit that you can just go buy the tag take your bow and hunt yeah and i mean that's huge because it gives you a lot of opportunities going out there especially for someone new i mean you know just because Colorado does have the largest elk population. You should have a lot more opportunities when you go out there to, uh, right. you know, screw up and learn from your mistakes because that's going to happen. Uh, oh, you'll definitely screw up too. <laughs> exactly. But before we break down that hunt anymore, uh, let's let's jump to a couple of these other states and talk about the tag systems in a couple of these other states you've hunted in. Uh, so I know you've hunted Colorado. Uh, what are the other two states that you've been able to hunt out there? So I did Colorado. Uh, next in line was Montana and then Wyoming. Okay, well, let's break down Montana a little bit. Now, okay, so uh, they're, they've got a, a kind of crazy system there, but they have a kind of over-the-counter tag. So, And I say that because um, it's a general tag, and you can buy it over-the-counter if there's leftovers after the initial draw. Now, up until I think it was last season, there have always been leftovers. And I think last season they did sell out on the general draw. Now, you draw it with zero points, but you did have to apply to get it. So um, we we hunted Montana off of a general tag as a second option when we did not draw our Wyoming antelope tag a few, back, uh, few years back. Okay, and was that for archery or for, was that for uh, firearm? It's good for both. Okay. So we went up there during archery season. And uh, your general tag will cover both. So, and actually a buddy of mine that went with us, he went back in, I believe he went back in November uh, towards the end of season and hunted on the rifle tag because he didn't didn't punch his tag during archery season. And he made the drive back up there. Um, And something else about the Montana tag. So the general elk tag in Montana is $885, which is pretty steep. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, but for $1,041, you can get an elk and a deer. So a lot of the units 
will have uh, will be open for general season for elk and deer. Uh, that's what we did when we went out there. We spent the extra, you know, 160 bucks, and we went ahead and got the deer elk combo tag. And the the units that we had scouted, well, I say scouted, we had scouted online, uh, and and it kind of picked out. We could shoot elk, we could shoot whitetail, and we could shoot mule deer all on the same general tag. Now that's very cool, especially <clears throat> coming from a, being a southerner going out there you know the more opportunities for different species you could hunt i mean i think that makes for the, makes the hunt even that much better oh, uh, yeah, definitely. so montana being able to get that that tag where you get the you know the both elk and uh deer combo i mean that's that's just even more fun because you go out there and you have you know another thing to hunt but like yeah. a couple people would say that also kind of um keeps your focus in between the line and you kind of straddle the fence because you know you might see a good mule deer you go up the mule deer and then you don't get the mule deer and you kind of forget about the elk and vice versa oh uh, yeah and and if you don't uh, if you don't watch it that could happen for sure um we went into it as an elk hunt with uh mule deer being you know a little side if we ran into a mule deer it was over with but uh we were primarily elk hunting and, and it worked out pretty good for us we did end up bringing home a couple of mule deer on that uh on that trip and they were both really tasty meat does but uh we we had tags and we were bringing meat home and uh there was an abundance of them anyway so it worked out real good for us oh yeah exactly plus i mean mule deer is absolutely delicious but you know so we kind of touch on uh now we touch on colorado you know tag system and then we touch on um montana and their tag system now talk about that third state that you were able to hunt and the difference there okay so wyoming um i have found wyoming to be the hardest state to give money to because they always give it back after they draw um it it took us quite a while to draw wyoming i think we drew our tag on six points so that means we apply after six years and did not get it um but wyoming's got a, a a true uh preference point system but they also have a random draw. So they're, uh, I, and I'm sure a lot of the listeners understand the preference points, but I, I'll break it down just to, just to make sure. Um, if you draw, if you apply and, and are unsuccessful in the draw, Wyoming will give you a preference point. So that bumps you one step ahead of somebody that has never applied before. And then if you apply again and don't draw, you get a second point. So that bumps you ahead of the people with two points. So when they draw their tags, say they've got 10 tags for this unit, they take a list of all the applicants. And they say, all right, this guy's got six points. Nobody else has six points. He gets one tag. So now there's nine tags left. All right, we've got these guys with five points. They get these tags. And so on and so forth down the line. So the more points you're going to, you know, you're, you're more likely to draw the tag. But they also, if a unit has enough tag allotments, they mm-hmm. do put some tags into a random draw. And so if you apply to a unit in Wyoming or are unsuccessful in the draw, you automatically get put into the random draw, and you still might draw the tag if you don't have enough points. So we missed out on drawing on points and on the random for several years before we got our tag so Wyoming has a lot of trophy units a lot of units that require a ton of points but Wyoming also has uh, a general tag just like the uh, 
Colorado, just like Montana. You do have to have preference points to draw a general tag. Um, in the past, it's been one to two preference points to draw it. So you could you could draw it every other year, a uh, general tag. So you would either apply and get denied and get your uh, preference point, or you could just straight up buy a point without front application fees. And the next year, you've got a really good chance of drawing that general tag. Okay. So you do have options there. But uh, we did go on a, uh, a draw, and it was... I want to say we burned six points on this tag, and so it took us that long to get the tag. And was that for a archery or firearm hunt? That was for a firearm tag. Um, some of the units, uh, it's harder to get an archery tag. It takes more points. Some units, it takes more points to get the rifle tag. Uh, it just, it's that's really based on uh, like where the elk are at that time of year. You know, mm-hmm. if it's uh, something that's affected a lot by the weather and the elk get pushed down quicker, then you're going to want to hunt on an archery tag. If they're still hanging around up there during gun season, then your odds are obviously better with a gun, and it's going to be harder to draw the, the firearm tag. Okay. Well, again, that kind of breaks down a little bit easier. Now, What when it came to um, Wyoming, what service did you use to figure out, or did you use any service at all to figure out uh, you know, how many points you kind of needed uh, to draw you know, one of these units? Uh, Wyoming is really good about publishing all their draw information. So you can go to their Department of Wildlife page, and you can go to the elk page under the hunting section, and you can go back for the uh, draw results for several years. And it'll tell you how many tags were allotted, how many people applied, uh, how many points they had. It shows you how many people applied with X amount of points. I mean, it's really detailed what they give you out there on their website. And if you're playing the preference point game in, in Wyoming, they have what what is called uh, points creep. So if I apply this year with four points and don't get it, I may draw it on five points next year, but I may not because a lot of people with the same amount of points as you did not draw last year, and they're going to be applying again this year. Mm-hmm. So... Your odds get better, but they're still not guaranteed. So uh, I would go in and just the unit we wanted to hunt, I would trend it over a three, four-year period. And you could see how many points it took to draw, and you would see that percentage go up. You know, the the number of points would go up every year. And you can kind of map it on your own and say, well, I've got a good chance of catching it this year, so I'll put in. And, uh, and mainly as far as the draw odds go, I use the, the Wyoming Department of Wildlife's webpage. You know, I'll say that that was huge for us when we went out to Wyoming for our mule deer hunt for just figuring out what units we could draw with X amount of points or no points because we were going in with no points. Right. And uh, we were actually, funny enough, we tried to outsmart the system like we talked on a couple episodes back <laughs> and really wanted to draw our second or third choice but put in for – our number one choice is being one that we thought was unattainable and drew that one and turned out that one had grizzly bears in it, which made it that much more fun. Uh, and that was, a, that was, again, that was a funny time when Andrew calls me. He's like, Hey, uh, cause I was at work and he's like, Hey, uh, we, we, we get drawn. I'm like, awesome dude. What unit? And he's like, um, remember the one we were talking about? Cause I, I won't say the name right now, but he's like, you know, remember the one we talked about that, you know, if we went, we would have to have like bear protection cause there's me a lot of grizzly bears. I'm like, yep. Yeah. He's like, yeah, we drew that one, and I was upset. <laughs> oh, dude, we, we so when y'all were out there on your mule deer hunt, we were about 100 miles away from y'all on an elk hunt, and 
we did not have grizzly bears, and we picked the unit for that that reason, man. I know some people are all about hunting around grizzlies, but they just make me nervous. <laughs> we hunted around them in in Montana. We were in a really highly grizzly infested area. We never saw one. Mm-hmm. I don't think I slept, man. <laughs> just kind of nervous coming from down here with no bears to up there with grizzlies. Just kind of, I don't know, kind of got me shook up. So I was, was kind of happy to not be around them in Wyoming. Yeah, see, ain't. So the tides kind of turned when we went out there, and Andrew will say it didn't, and he'll call me a liar, but it, it did. <laughs> Where when we were going to go out there, Andrew was all about hunting around grizzlies. He's like, "Heck yeah, that's awesome, dude!" You know, I'm like, "Dude, I don't want to see one." Like, I almost thought about building a uh, an AR-10 pistol in 308 just to carry with us for bear protection, and decided that was too heavy to carry along with us. But uh, then we get out there, and I, I got to the point physically, mentally, I'm like, dude, I don't care if I see a grizzly, whatever. Like, bring it on, let's go. <laughs> and he, and, he, yeah. and he, was, he was a total opposite. He's like, heck no, because we had the chance to actually go, we had the chance to go to uh, one area that uh, some locals told us there was a there was a, a kill that was claimed by a grizzly down down the creek bottom where we were hunting. I told Andrew, like, let, like let's not necessarily go to the, the kill site, but let's kind of like, go down there and see if there's any mule deer. And he didn't want to yeah. have anything to do with that. But uh, oh, I can imagine so. <laughs> oh, yeah. But the funny thing is, uh, the week after we had killed or both harvest our bucks, uh, a buddy of ours who was up there who actually works at the tax dermers I dropped my deer off at, uh, went back to that same trailhead where we killed our deer. And literally, like, 200 yards above the trailhead, there was a, a boar grizzly, like a three- or four-year-old boar grizzly that was feeding on something right there. And he took pictures of it through his spotting scope. Uh, oh, man. So, so, yeah. I mean, they're there, man. They are there. But, uh, you know, again, you know, trying to maybe get us not so sidetracked, kind of jump back on the topic. Um, so, again, you know, talking tags and everything, you know, you have a couple different states that's a little bit different in each one. Um, oh, yeah. But let, let's talk a little bit about, uh, first of all, I, I've got to ask, you know, were, were y'all successful at all in either of those states, and how, how did those some of those hunts go? So in uh, first year in Colorado, um, we had opportunities that we missed uh, on, on bull elk. Uh, same thing the second year in Colorado, man. I got busted drawing back on one, and we got busted stalking in on one, and, you know, it's a, it's a learning curve, but... Uh, did not do any good in Montana. Um, so a lot of people, they'll, they'll talk about how crowded Colorado is. I, I have never seen as many people as I did in Montana. And it might have been where we were, just the proximity of where we were to major town, or I don't know, man. But uh, we didn't really do a lot of good in Montana. And then in Wyoming this past year, we ended up bringing two bulls out. So I would say... Uh, three out of the four trips we've made out there we've been in elk um we've had shot opportunities uh, and actually on two of our colorado hunts we were hunting with a resident out there and both times he brought a cow out uh on opening day so that was pretty cool so uh you know we, we were we, we were in elk we were you know just rookie mistakes man coming yeah. from down here coming up there it's a different ball game but I'm telling you, it was fun, and we had opportunity, if nothing else. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. I mean, you know, we're all about having success, but there is a learning curve. Yeah. And, and, and you learn, you literally, I mean, you learn a lot from your mistakes. Um, it, it's one of those things that, especially when you go into certain situations, like if you go on an archery hunt, you know your success rate is going to be lower, especially being new at it, than you, if anything else. So that you right. got you got to kind of come to that realization before we get out there and not set your standards 
so high that you get disappointed because that's never good because then you won't want to go on that hunt again. You need to come into that situation with a realization that, you know, you're going to try to have the best hunt possible. You're going to work as hard as you can. If, if you're not successful, whatever, but you're going to have a great time. And uh, right. th- th- that's the biggest thing because a lot of guys get tied up on success, which, I mean, success is huge. I mean, if you're going out there, you know, you want to get something, but you also got to realize that, you know, this is not going to be my last time going, hopefully. And you're going to be able to learn a lot from a hunt and really be able to apply even more for the next hunt and uh, hunt after that and hunt after that. Because I feel next time we go to Wyoming, man, even if it was on archery tag, man, I, I feel pretty confident uh, going back out there. Just learning about how the animals use the terrain, h- how they really move around the terrain, and uh, just learning more about antelope or learning more about mule deer because they're totally different from whitetail and elk's totally different from all of that. Um, but, okay, so... You know, the realization of going out there and, you know, hunting elk is not easy uh, by no right. means, guys. And a lot of got, a lot of people need to understand that just because you watch outdoor television and every show you see about elk is always kill shots and stuff, which makes it look easy, and it's, it's not that easy. No, uh, it's not. You know, a buddy of mine that went out there with us, uh, he, hunted, he hunted Wyoming, he hunted Montana, he hunted my second year in Colorado. And after that trip home from Colorado, you know, it was like, man, we went out there and we didn't do anything and all this. And, you know, he, he said something that kind of made sense. He said, you can't tell me that you can pick a random person out of Colorado and say, here's a map of the Homochitta National Forest. Come down to Mississippi and kill a whitetail. Yep. You know, and, and it kind of hit me. It's like, well, that's exactly what we did is we picked a random spot on a map and we said, I'm going to go there and shoot an elk. Yep, yep. And, you know, you you can pick terrain features. You can pick areas that are far away from a road where you're not going to get into much pressure. You can pick all that stuff, but it's not a guarantee, man. And the thing is, it's fun regardless. That's, I mean, it's the, the scenery, getting out there and seeing new things. You know, seeing different uh, different animals that you never see. In Colorado, we had, we were covered up in mule deer and got to study them. Like you said, they behave different than a whitetail. And we saw a lot of mule deer. We got to see what they do, how they act. Uh, we saw a moose in Montana. We had moose walking through our camp. I mean, <laughs> you know, there, there's stuff you don't see around the house. So it's people pay more than a, more than we paid to go on that trip to go on vacation. And, and we got to see stuff up close and personal that you ain't going to just drive on vacation and see so i I consider it a success regardless of of bringing something home but elk are really tasty and i don't mind bringing one home so you know i'm going out there not just taking pictures i'm going out there to shoot something but it's a it's a good trip regardless well especially and you also gotta think how much meat you're going to get off an elk which is huge i mean that's that's one reason why I, th- I believe most of us hunt, or hopefully all of us hunt, is also for that meat aspect. I mean, oh, of course. sure, a, a nice rack's you know great and all, but also the memories and that meat is just phenomenal, especially when you can share that with friends and family. Uh, which, like you said, elk's absolutely delicious. I've only had elk once in my entire life, and it, it was it was game changing. Uh, oh yeah, but well, we walked up on that the elk in Wyoming, and it was like walking up on a horse, man. That thing's huge, and. Uh, just you know while we're talking about the meat just to give you an idea to to bring elk back into mississippi it had to be completely boned out uh we've got some laws regarding that based on uh preventing the spread of cwd wyoming's a cwd state so and now mississippi is but 
so there was laws in place that you had to have it deboned to bring it in the state. So we we set up in front of the hotel the night we packed out. We sat in front of the hotel. We covered my tailgate with garbage bags and we boned out meat, man. We uh we put on a Randy Newberg podcast and uh, broke out our knives and uh, went to cutting it up right there in the parking lot. And we ended up with two 120 quart coolers and a 60 quart cooler slap full of boned out meat. And was that so, with one or two? Uh, uh, that, that's that's with two elk. Yeah. And dude, it was it was almost overwhelming. Starting to starting to butcher that. It's like, all right, yeah, we're we're making the progress, and you know, an hour into, it's like, man, we're we're halfway through, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so, but it was it's a lot of meat, man. They're big animals. Well, I mean, that's awesome. I mean, you can you talk about stacking a freezer full. I mean, that's you go on an elk hunt, you better be buying a deep freeze afterwards because they're gonna need the space. <laughs> definitely man you will fill one up quick that was uh <laughs> i was a lot more picky during deer season after that i was like yep. man i always i always like to get a good sausage dough to start things off and you know i had opportunities <laughs> i'm like man i got all that elk in the freezer do i really want to clean this thing tonight yep. let's just wait until another day <laughs> <laughs> yeah i can relate i was gonna say after we get back from our uh wyoming trip it, it it took me a little time just to be able to really pull the trigger on anything just because i was like man like I mean, I had, first of all, I had a lot of meat because I had a little bit of meat from last season still left over, uh, plus all my, my mule deer. And I think I got 75 pounds of boned-out meat off the mule deer, uh, which is, I mean, huge. When, once you put it all, you know, vacuum vacuum-packed and everything in the freezer, I mean, it takes up a lot of room, especially when you don't have a deep freeze. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> so so, so that, was, that was my issue. And now with me living in Nashville, I have even a smaller freezer because uh, I used to have a one, like, full-size freezer that I had all my meat in. Now I have, like, a, a half-fridge, uh, like a classic, and I got to buy me a deep freezer or something because I swear if I, if I shoot one doe, it, it'll fill that bad boy up. Uh, so that's a oh, problem. Yeah. You got to work on that, man. Yeah, that's, that's what I'm saying. I'm like, I got, I don't know, I got an extra bedroom. I might make that into just a a, a game room slash, uh, you know. A freezer room. Yeah, freezer room. That's about, that's about it. But, uh, Call, meat, well, make you a meat locker in there. You're exa- good to go. Exactly. You're right about that, man. My, uh, yeah, I'm gonna be that one tenant that the uh, yeah they're not gonna like me. But anyways, be dragging in quarters of deer, quarter, quarters of a uh, whitetail up the uh, up the stairs. That'd be, that'd be interesting. But anyways, uh, kind of jumping back to this, uh, this this you know this topic of this elk hunting in general. Um, when, when it came to scouting, and you know you talk about you just picked a part of the map that you wanted to go hunt in Colorado. You know what were you looking for on that first hunt? uh to go find elk and how did that possibly you know change as your other hunts kind of came about uh you know when it came to like finding elk also what terrain features you were looking for and stuff like that so uh two trips to colorado were in archery season and archery season you're trying to catch the rut and you're i mean it's kind of hard to time so you got to set a time to go and you're really trying to catch the rut so you can call them in it doesn't always work, so you don't want to focus primarily on that. Uh, it's typically hot that time of year, so the elk are going to most likely still be up high. They're going to be around water sources because the bulls are going to be getting fired up. They're going to wallow, um, so you got to find high water sources, and they like dark timber. They want to stay cool, so you know, an elk is a really hot-blooded animal uh the ones we shot in wyoming it was you know temperatures in the 30s when we shot them 
and you would not believe how hot that animal was. You know, after we broke it down, hung the meat, it's, it was just amazing. And so they they want to stay cool. They want to stay in the shade. They want to stay close to water. So that's what we focused on. We wanted a higher elevation. Uh, we focused on water sources that originated up high and were close to dark timber. And that's pretty much what we did. We, we pinpointed some spots and decided there may be some, some wallows there and got up, got up there, hiked up, found us some actual active wallows and sat on them and tried calling. And when we were there, um, we were successful in, in calling some bulls in, but they really weren't where they needed to be for the rut. But so they were starting to rut, but they weren't quite there. So we focused more on, you know, water, uh, hunting wallows, hunting water holes. Okay. And so, and a lot of people out west don't like to do that. Being used to hunting whitetails, man, that's what we do. We find a spot and sit. So uh, we did that, and and we would we would get in early. Uh, we would try to catch them moving in the mornings and call to them. The afternoon, midday, we would just sit water. And uh, that's what we were looking for. Now, Montana uh, was the same way, but it gets colder a little bit earlier up there. The time of year we went, we were a little bit later in the archery season. And we had, we had planned it kind of around that, but we looked for uh, places that were... I don't know, it would be easier to glass because uh, we're you know, a little more open with some dark timber around, but a little more open so we could glass and try to catch them moving and try to stalk in on them that way. Uh, we weren't sure if they'd be vocal or not. We weren't sure how pressured they would be, but we did figure, you know, the rut would be closer to being on. And you're not really as dependent on the, the heat uh, up there. And so before we got there in Montana, the few days leading up to it, it snowed 18 inches before we got there. Mm. So anything resembling heat was not there. It was it was cold, man. Um, so the snow changed a lot of things. And once we got there, the pressure changed a lot of things. And we ended up going to Plan B on that one. But uh, Plan B was about the same thing, man. Find, uh, you know, you, we're still looking for water sources. You know, and we were looking for spots that were more open where we could glass and maybe catch them slipping and, and you know, catch them midday that way. Uh, try to catch them where, where they were bedded at and then call from there. Yeah, and I think that's huge is, first of all, just figuring out the terrain and understanding that because it's totally different. I mean, I know yeah. when you're in Colorado, I don't know what or what elevation were y'all hunting at uh, on average, you think? So Colorado, uh, the first trip, we were hunting between 9,000 and around 10,500 for a couple of days. And then we went up to right at 12,000 for a few days. Mm. Uh, and uh, <laughs> the second trip in Colorado, the trailhead started at 11,500. Oh, my God. <laughs> we, cre- we crested the saddle at 12,400. Mm-hmm. And we dropped back and camped in the first trees we came to at Timberline. So we were camped around 12,000. Oh, my God. Okay. And <laughs> And it sounds crazy, but man, that's where the elk were. I mean, oh yeah, oh yeah. They they weren't they weren't vocal yet. They were, you know, they the rut hadn't really kicked off. You'd hear a few bugles here and there, you know, early morning, late afternoon, at night. They weren't really fired up. They were still using the water holes, and uh, they were trying to stay up high and stay cool. And it was 
it was pretty warm the time we were there, so that's where they were. Yeah, that's crazy, you know, especially like you and me talking, uh, you know, we're both from, you know, places in the country where we're living below 500 feet in elevation. Oh, yeah. Uh, (laughs) That's brutal. (laughs) Yeah, I'll say, what was your, let's talk about this for a second. What was your training regimen before you went on your hunts, especially in Colorado, uh, to get in shape for that? Because, I mean, it's one thing, guys, like, all honesty, you have to get in shape to do some of these hunts. Antelope hunt, you can get away with it, like, no big deal, to be honest. But, like, if you're doing, like, a high country mule deer hunt or a, a course an early season elk hunt, you, you better be in shape. So kind of talk to us, what did you do for that and how well or maybe how not that, how well that uh, really helped you? Well, one, one thing I realized, coming from where we are, you can be in the best shape of your life. You're not going to be in shape for the mountains because the altitude's a whole different ballgame. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what does not hurt you is to have a good cardio base because you're going to be walking. You're going to be moving around. It's thinner air up there. It's going to be harder to breathe. So the better you can control your heart rate, control your breathing, the better off you are. Um, And leading up to it, the the few months right before we left, I started carrying a heavy pack around town. I hit heels. Um, And after that, uh, I started picking up, like, doing squats, lunges, weighted lunges, things like that. Because it comes to a certain point in time when if you've got a good base cardio, um, it's going to just be a matter of picking one foot up and putting it in front of the other. Yep. You know, your your cardio will get you so far, but unless you have the stamina, you're not going to do You're going to get winded. You're going to wear yourself out. So lots of leg work leading up to it, heavy pack work, and a good cardio base. Um, I run a lot up until a couple weeks ago. I'd run every day this year. Uh, I'm I'm at over 500 miles for the year so far. So I, I keep my cardio up. And still, before we go out there, you know, all that running kind of goes out the window. And I start packing heavy and and doing you know doing leg work. And it helps. I mean, uh, and now you know where we live. Well, in Nashville, it might be a little bit different for you. You might can find some decent hills down there where i am if we find a decent hill it's not going to be very tall yeah um so it's hard to just say throw on your backpack and, and walk up a mountain because we don't have mountains to walk up where mm-hmm. i'm from but one good thing is you pick a long hill with a little you know it's kind of steep and put 20 pounds in your pack and see how fast you can get to the top and do that a few times and, and whenever you're you know seeing really good results and you've picked up a bunch of time throw some more weight in your pack and then keep going until you're not making up any more time and put more weight in your pack and you don't have to do that every day man a couple days a week you know leading up to it uh if you can't find a hill go do some bleachers run stairs or something and it'll definitely help in the long run I'll tell you what I did uh, to help me out. And I, I think it helped, but like you said, I don't care how good a shape you're in, when you hit the mountains, it is a different animal. Yes, definitely. Like, it, it, will, it will make the, the – uh, as Andrew would say, it would make a man out of you. Uh, oh, yeah. Because either, either you're going to quit or you're going to suck it up and get through it and you're going to be hurting for a couple of days. And, the, I mean, yes. that's the truth. I mean, I'm not trying, we're not trying to scare anybody, but, like, in all honesty, when you get above about 65 to 8,500 feet – in that area or higher, it, it is rough, uh, absolutely rough. Uh, what I did was 
I did hiking with packs. I had to break in my boots too that I bought. So I had to cover 50 miles in the first like two weeks I had my boots to try to like get them broken in. And uh, I did that with a weighted pack on. And then what I would do, I'd have a weighted pack between 40 and 65 pounds on a Stairmaster. And I would do stair mat. I would do you know stairs for X amount of time. You know, try to go for three or four minutes at a time. Take breaks and try to go as long as you could. And that that I think helped strength wise and you know endurance wise as well. But it's just one of those things when you're up there and you're in high enough you know elevation that you know the air is thinner, uh, the density is, and you, like for every one breath down here is like two or three breaths up there. And that is oh, like yeah. that is the case. I mean, we made it a couple hundred yards from the truck, and me and Andrew looked back because we had to go up a hill. And I'm like, "This is about to be super rough." <laughs> and uh, it took us, you know, five and a half hours to cover two and a half miles, yeah. uh, which which is insane. Um, but just because we had to cover like 2,200 feet in elevation, but you know, it's just that thing. I mean, when you're doing elk hunt, guys, I mean, it's the real deal, and you ought to, you know, try to be as in you know good a shape, at least like you said, cardio wise, and you know have you know, good strength. I mean, you don't have to be, you know, muscle man. You don't have to be benching 265 pounds and be able to squat 500 pounds. But I mean, you just need to be in an athletic, you know, shape to be able to kind of do that effectively. And so you don't hurt yourself. I mean, that's the thing. You definitely don't want to get in trouble and get yourself hurt and having issues when you're up on the mountain, which I know, Josh, you've got a story about that uh, with one of your partners, don't you? Yeah, sure do, man. I I was actually going to bring that up. So uh, altitude sickness is a real thing. Mm -hmm. Um, buddy of mine that went out there with us we went out in july and scouted and uh leading up to it you know he had a cold and you know sinuses messed with him whatever so we got out there in july and man he he was having a hard time breathing he was coughing a lot um nauseated really didn't want to eat and uh when we'd get back to town from scouting we were at about 8500 feet he was he was good and anytime we get up around 10,000, you know, he, he had trouble breathing, coughing or whatever. We just chalked it up to, well, you know, he's, he's recovering from a cold. It's nothing major. And we go back out there in September and we get up to altitude and he gets sick. Like he, we, we get into camp the first night and, uh, he didn't, I mean, he wouldn't eat. He just was felt awful. So gets camp set up and and you know we sit around the fire for a little while and we hear some elk bugling and he's laid up in the tent you know and i went and got him I was like, hey man we got some elk bugling out here and he, he was like all right cool you know whatever so the next morning we get up and he's like man i can't get up and go and do i just don't feel it so you could tell he was not feeling good and i was like well man get up eat you some breakfast you know some hot oatmeal or something make you feel better he's like i'm just gonna stay in bed for a little bit i'll get up and hunt this way y'all go the other way and the next day, man, it was the same thing. And finally, we we're like, dude, you, something's not right. So let's let's go back to town and just, you know, get some get a good meal, see how things go. Get below ten thousand feet, he's normal. I mean, everything's good. He he just, you know, we got up high and he he couldn't do it. So it's nothing nothing he could help. Nothing, no training could, you know, could fix that. And so it's a real thing, and it's 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 dangerous too. I mean, you can get up there and get yourself in a bind. And uh, so, if, if you do happen to go out there uh, and you're planning on hunting a high elevation unit, have a backup plan at lower elevation. There's plenty of units that are not above ten thousand feet. There's a lot of units that you can hunt close to town. I mean, 
you know, don't don't go out there thinking I've got to hunt the top of the highest mountain out there because you don't have to. And and if it's going to pose a health risk, you know, it's not only going to hurt you. If you get back there and get in a bind, and you got somebody with you. You're putting them in a bind too. So you know, not only are you putting yourself in danger, they've got to help get you out of there. And and he realized that once we got there, and you know, he he hunted with us in Montana, and we we weren't uh. uh we weren't as high as we were, and he was fine. He hunted with me in Wyoming this year. Same thing, man. He was all good. You know, no difference. But it seems like when he approached or passed the 10,000-foot mark, he just, his his body couldn't take it. So it's nothing you can train for there. And, and if you get out there and start to get sick, man, don't, don't try to push it, I guess. Listen to your body. Yeah, and I can relate with that. And, again, guys, you know, we left elk you know, to be our last part of this series, just because it's that dream hunt. It's like pretty much the most majestic animal out there when it comes to hunting, but it's also one of the most intense hunts you're going to go on. I mean, it's one of those things you got to take some preparation to be able to make this happen. And I can relate, I can relate with your buddy about getting sick. I got sick when we got up to around 8,200 feet, um, in Wyoming and I was fine down the bottoms. It was no issue. And we finally got up to the top and I uh, went to the saddle and camped up there. And dude, I was I thought I was just just sore and just tired, but I, I had no appetite at all. A yeah. like unbelievable migraine. If I try to eat or drink anything, I got nauseous, and I'm like, dude, yeah. I, I gotta sit in the tent. Like I can't do this. Went to sleep and almost got blown off the freaking mountain in the tent that night. Woke up the next day and it was exactly the same, if not worse. And we had a we walked about 150 yards to this big glassing knob uh, that we were trying to glass from, and literally it was a struggle for me to walk that 150 yards with no pack on. Like, just how bad I felt total, like, it's almost like, it almost felt like having the flu, but way worse. Uh, Yeah, and he he was the same way, man. Migraine, couldn't eat. When he he did eat, he got nauseous. I mean, it was the same thing. And it's, it happens to some people. And, you know, that's the thing. It it doesn't, it doesn't affect everybody. It doesn't affect everybody the same way. But it's pretty much, if, if you get it, you know. Don't try to push it. Yeah, and that was our thing because we were going to try to cover another three or four miles the next day, and we had to go back down this big bottom. I told Andrew Strip we were sitting there glass, and we had to drop down probably 800 feet. We were trying to go exactly two miles in one direction as the crow flies, but as we had to cross, we had to go down three different drainages to get there, right. and uh, you know the elevation change total from like going down all the way across would probably be around 3,000 feet going down and coming back it up. And oh, uh, yeah. and I told him, I'm like, dude, if we go down there, because he was fine, like he was fine. I'm like, dude, if we go down there, I'm not coming back up. Like, you're you're gonna be calling somebody. Like, I'm not. I, there's no way. And uh, so we decided it was smart for us to back off the mountain, which was which you know helped us, and we were able to harvest a deer doing that. Um, but yeah, man, it, that is the real deal because it it got real when you were up there, and you're like, dude, this isn't as easy as I thought it was gonna be. And that's another thing. I think map scouting will give you a false sense of security and a false sense of what it's going to be like. Because we oh. we were scouting this one spot, and we're like, it's like seven miles deep. And we're like, oh, man, we can do this. Like, this is no bother. I'm like, we're used to walking 15, you know, 15 miles down here in Alabama. I mean, sure, there's going to be elevation change, but it can't be that bad. And we got there, and it was a different freaking animal. It was. Oh, it is, man. You mm-hmm. you see it on, uh, on Google Earth. You check the topo maps and everything, and you're like, you realize – you see the numbers like okay so we're gonna have this much elevation change but until you're standing there looking up you're like oh that's what that elevation change looks like yep. it might be different now oh, yeah. so you know and people that live out there 
they're used to it. But man, coming from down here, it's like I don't know. It's it's hard to hard to imagine until you see it up close and personal. You get out the trailhead and you're like, that's the saddle we're going to, right? Mm-hmm. That's that's three miles. How how high up is that? Oh man, it's it's a it's a different ball game for sure. That that that's one reason I think elk hunt uh, elk hunt really had to put a lot of preparation to. Like I've got a buddy of mine. He's like dead set. He wants to go on a Colorado elk hunt, which we kind of talked him out of it, and now he's going to Wyoming on a uh, leftover antelope hunt after listening to our last episode or two episodes, oh, I guess. Cool. And um, but th- the reason why I was trying to talk him out of it, just trying to do that elk hunt as your first western hunt, which I think is fine if you're prepared for it or try to be as prepared, it, you'll be okay. Yeah. But it is so rough just trying to make that happen, especially if you're doing a high altitude archery hunt, and that's what I'm talking about right now. Uh, I mean. Physically and mentally, you got to be prepared for that because, as Remy Warren says, the, the suck factor is huge, and you got to embrace the suck because it, it is. is going to suck. I don't care what what kind of gear you're packing, unless you got horses. Even if you got horses, it's not going to be that fun. Um, so, so it's just it's just stuff like that. You you really got to be prepared for it. And again, that's kind of like why we're talking about this. And I think you know a lot of people are going to get a lot of out of this. But you know, as, as a side note, um, you know, let's talk a little bit more about actually just you know, hunting tactics when you were out there. Um, you know, let's talk difference between archery and, you know, a rifle hunt. When you were out in Colorado doing your archery hunt and also, I guess, in Montana, uh, you know, what? let's talk a little bit more about your tactics when you were in there uh, from, like, when you woke up in the morning to, you know, you went to sleep at night. What was your game plan every day, and how did you go about executing that? So, uh, early season Colorado and Montana, our, our main thing was we wanted to get between where the elk were feeding and where they're going to bed and if there was a water source between there we wanted to try to get close to it in case they water on their way to the bed um so we'd get in as early as we could uh skirt around where we thought they were feeding and you know try to play the wind obviously and you know call see if we can get anything to answer and and kind of play it from there um and it worked uh as far as getting them to to come to the calls i mean they were when they were leaving from where they were feeding, they weren't really turned on for the rut yet, but it was enough to where you, you catch a few curious bulls and we were able to call a couple in like that, just catching them midday. And then, uh, afternoon, like I said, we were, we we're hunting water. So, you know, we do, we try to midday or I, I guess after midday, early afternoon, I guess, you know, we would try to slip around to where we thought they were bedded and, Call, uh, call and see if we get anything to answer from their bed and if we weren't successful doing that we would just go back to the water source and set up uh, or we would try to catch them where they were leaving to where they were going to feed that afternoon so it was it was all like on whitetail at that point you know if they're not vocal you got to set up on a travel path and see what you could do uh, it was a little too thick to glass where we were in Colorado so we didn't really use that tactic very much um we did use game cameras leading up to season. Uh, one one time we drove out early, hung game cameras, and then picked the cameras up like the day we got there and, and kind of got an idea of what was used in the area and everything. Um, so that helped out a lot, uh, but not a lot of people are going to pack up and drive 1,500 miles to hang a game camera to check it a few months later. Mm-hmm. So it's not really always a reality, but... That helped us out a lot to give us an idea of what they were doing. But mainly, I mean, they weren't vocal. We hunted them like whitetail. We you know, set up on travel corridors and food and water sources. 
Now, now, one thing I'm interested in asking, I'm sure a lot of other guys are interested in this too, is you know when you're hunting elk, especially during the rut, it's all about calling. Okay. Yes. That that is the name of the game. It's like turkey hunting. Uh, That's exactly right, man. It's it, a it's a big turkey. Um, and I know uh, I heard I was listening to a meat eater podcast, and they were making fun of people saying that, but. That's pretty much the, the best thing I can relate it to from, you know, the type of hunting that we do in the South. It's you're, you're mimicking a, uh, a female trying to make the male come in there and, and see, see what it's all about, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's it's the closest thing you can compare it to. And, and that's so true. I mean, I've always said this for a little I, – I mean, I've said this for a while now is, you know, turkey hunting in the South is our version of elk hunting compared to the guys yeah. out west uh i mean it's all about you know tactics it's all about trying to outsmart the other animal and try to reverse you know uh you know the natural set of nature because in That's nature right. the female is supposed to go to the males and same thing when it comes to elk where you're trying to get that you know that bull to come to you it's totally opposite and you've got to try to outsmart him with your calling um so how first of all i'll say i do own one elk mouth call and I can cow call on it, okay. I just don't know how to bugle at all. How difficult was it for you to learn how to call? And is there any tips that you would ever give to someone new starting out that maybe just to practice and to try to get used to it? Uh, you know, what all did it take to be able, you know, to cow call and then also just be able to bugle? There, there's several different types of calls out there. I mean, you've got uh, diaphragm calls like you'd use for turkey. And a lot of people down here are used to using those, so that might be the easiest transition. Um, there's uh, squeeze-type calls, like the Primo's Hoochie Mama. Um, there's some uh, reed-type calls that uh, I can't remember who makes them, but I've got one of those. Uh, so, I mean, there's different ways of making the noise, but I would I would try to find some sounds and listen to them. Um, there's a there's a book elk nuts playbook mm-hmm. and yep. man that thing is full of some good information he, he tells you the sounds to make when to make them and why you're making them mm-hmm. and it's a real good explanation it's not just go out there and make this cow call why am i making this cow call and what situation should i use it so that was that was really good um Corey jacobson has some really good stuff on mm-hmm. youtube yep uh on, and on his elk 101 website and Phelps Game Calls, they've got some stuff out there. And and I would just, I would get on there and listen to them call, listen to the noises they make and try to mimic them and then figure out the situations to use them. You know, a lot of their videos, they're out there hunting and you can see what the elk are doing and, and how they respond to it with their calls. And it's, that'll, that'll shorten the curve a lot right there. Yeah, and I think that's absolutely huge is, to have confidence when you got their calling. I mean, it's like turkey hunting is in, if, if you have confidence in your calling skills and technique, then you're going to feel more confident when you're going out there and you should have more success because you're having that confidence. Or if you go out there and you're like, oh, I don't know if I'm doing it right, then you're not going to probably call as often or you're probably not going to call as well. And then you're not going to have right. the confidence to sit there and trust that you're doing the right thing. Now, one thing to, uh, to be, uh, be said is Corey Jacobs is an absolute killer. That dude is unreal. Uh, if anyone doesn't know about him, they need to follow him on every social media platform uh, and learn how to kill ginormous bull elk. Um, on another note, um, the elk nut, which I, I cannot believe I'm forgetting his name, Paul something. Paul Medell, I think it yeah, is. He, yeah, this gentleman is unreal as well, as in the fact that he 
uh, back in the day, legit would go out there and pretty much sleep with the elk off season, during season, whenever, and try to listen to how they did their vocalization and try to learn in what in what reasons and what uh, situations they would call a certain way, especially on the cow side and also on the bull side. And he's got an app now, which I don't know if you know this, uh, Josh, uh, is the uh, Elk Nut app where he Ooh. it's like play by play. I forgot how much it is. It's, I think it might be like 10 bucks, which it'd be worth it for someone doing that hunt. It's on iTunes. It's, it should be on uh, Google Play, all that kind of stuff. And you can get that, and he literally does like play-by-play videos of certain calls and lets you call into it and kind of like play back on what you're doing. Uh, oh, so, wow. Yeah, so it's, it's really in-depth. It, 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 he's had a lot of good reviews on it. I have personally not used it. So personally, I don't have a, really a true review on it. But everything I've heard about him, I've heard him on a bunch of different podcasts talking about it. He's, they've had a really good success with it, and they're always revamping it. Uh, but that would be absolutely huge for anyone to learn how to call – I mean, elk, because I mean, it's totally different. It's like getting into turkey hunting. I mean, when you get into turkey hunting, pretty much all you know how to do is probably yelp, and that's about it. And, you know, that, that's fine and all. And you might call in a Jake or something or a really stupid Tom, but other than that, it's probably not going to work. So that's the thing about his uh, services, something I would definitely check out for anyone that's seriously going out there for the first time, or even if you just want to learn and get better elk calling, his app is supposedly top notch. And, you know, from everything I heard about it, it sounds like something that's definitely I'd recommend. Um, but that's one thing I wanted to cover for sure was just, just calling. Because, I mean, that's one thing that a lot of guys, you know, put into that situation. You know, they're, first of all, most likely do not know how to call elk because <laughs> we don't do that down here. Which, right. on, on, a, on a side note, uh, Josh, you told me that, you know, that's how you locate turkey sometimes down here on public land. Is that right? Man, uh, I didn't want you to say that out loud. But, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> when all else fails, they will gobble at an elk bugle. And it'll it'll freak out the other people hunting, too, because they don't know where that's coming from. So uh, they have, turkeys, uh, turkeys in Mississippi will hear any and everything during the season, and they'll they'll get kind of wise on the shot gobble. But uh, if you throw an elk bugle at them, man, it'll uh, it does wonders. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I had to let the cat out of the bag on that on that trick and tactic. But uh, yeah, I, I'm definitely going to try that next year. I think that'd be hilarious to go some high pressure public lane and let out a freaking a, a bugle on top of a ridge, and people be like, "Holy crap!" <laughs> Which in Tennessee, if I'm hunting uh, in North Cumberland uh, management area, I mean they got elk up there, so some people probably would be like, "Oh, that's cool, what, whatever." But maybe yeah, you, you might get a response out of it. <laughs> yeah, that that too. And uh, I know down in uh, Alabama, you know, you did that. People would freak out. Probably never heard of elk bugle unless they've been watching outdoor television. So, yep. uh, <laughs> but uh, okay, cool. Well, again, kind of covered the you know the calling aspect of it, which is important. But this is probably. One of the topics that I'm most excited about, because I'm, I'm an absolute gear junkie, uh, that, that is one thing when it comes to hunting, I don't mind either spending some money on on some really high quality gear or doing the research for it. I'm, I'm a research fanatic when it comes to just outdoor gear in general. But going out there for the first time, first I'd like for you to tell me a little bit about what was on your list, if you can remember, on that first hunt and you know, what was maybe necessary for that hunt? And then also, um, you know, what maybe wasn't necessary on that first hunt that you went on? Well, one thing I'll say is if you're planning your first trip out there, don't let gear hold you up on going. So you've got most of the stuff already that you're going to use out there. Mm-hmm. Now, it might not be ideal. And once you get there, you'll figure that out pretty quick. But don't let that hold you up on going. Now, before I went out there the first time, Man, I, I searched on internet forums. I looked at everybody's pack list that I could find. 
And instead of picking one or two things from each one, I just combined them all. Man, I hauled more crap out there than I ever <laughs> would have used. And uh, your first time out there, you're going to do the same thing. Yep. Um, you, you'll go out there with too much stuff, and there'll be that one thing that you did not bring, and you'll need it. So it's kind of kind of a toss-up there. But um, I always make a gear list every time I go, man. Every time I've been, I've made a gear list, what I packed. And as soon as I got home, I went through and made a check mark next to what I actually used. I made a check mark next to things that may be useful, and I made a check mark next to the ones that will never be used. And I've whittled my pack list down considerably doing that. But uh, I mean, the main thing, if you got to decide, am I going to hunt from the truck or am I going to spike camp? Am I going to pack in? Um, so you're going to need a good sleeping system. Uh, a tent, a sleeping pad, and a sleeping bag. You don't have to have a pillow, man. Wad up extra clothes to sleep yep. on. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. You know, there, there's things that you'll learn as you go. Um, but a, a good sleeping system, a good pair of boots, a good water filtration system, mm-hmm. and something to cook with. Yep. You, you need those. I mean, that's, that's essential right there. And... You know, your pack, you need a good pack, um, if, especially if you plan on hauling meat out with it, man. That'll that'll make or break you right there. <laughs> if you if you got one you think you like, you know, put a lot of weight in it, and that might change your mind. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I mean, I, I still wouldn't – most people, like I said, most people have got the gear you need to go out there. Man, if you're going out there on an archery hunt early season, the first time I went, I was hunting in my turkey hunting clothes. Um, you know, you've got lightweight, breathable, long sleeve camo. Uh, when you turkey hunt down here, man, you're wearing long sleeves, but you want something that's going to breathe because it's hot and humid. Uh, now up there, it's not humid, but it's still warm. Uh, down here, it's usually cool first thing in the morning. It's cool first thing in the morning up there. So, I mean, you can kind of compare the two. Uh, the stuff you wear whitetail hunt is probably going to work and get you by up there for a rifle hunt when it's cool. Now, one thing that I heard before I went up there, and, and I learned the hard way when I got there, is cotton kills. Yep. So mm. cotton will soak up moisture, and it'll hold on to it, and I don't care if it's 70 degrees outside, you will freeze to death. Um, I didn't believe it, and I got up there, and I wore a cotton long-sleeve shirt, and I wanted to throw that sucker away before I got to the house. Uh, so... You know, there's, there's little things like that, but most of the stuff you've got now will work as long as you have a good pair of boots because that's what – you're using them more than anything that you've got. You know, that's all you're doing is walking. you got to walk in. you got to walk to your hunting spot. You know, you're moving around on your feet all day. So if you don't have a good pair of boots, it'll kill you. But uh, most of the other gear you've already got will get you by. Um, and then you can decide – Okay, well, this wasn't ideal for me. Stick some money back and get something that is, but don't go out and you know buy everything new for your first trip out there. Yeah, don't don't do what I did. I, yeah, <laughs> I, I, I'm a bad example, guys. You don't want to do what I did unless you got some money to throw around. So don't don't well, look look at yeah look yeah don't look at me on that aspect because 
I don't know. I, I just I don't know. I, I have issues. I got issues. I, I, I like I like new gear. I don't know. I'm just yeah, it's, it's I how got I'm the wired. Same yeah, it's just how I'm wired, man. I like to try new. I like to try different stuff and just see how it works. And I, I, I've got to ask though, what boots did you run when you were out there, and what boots have you settled on since then? So my first trip out there, I got on Sierra Trading Post, which yep. is oh, I yeah. was going to throw this out there at some point. You can pick up last year's gear dirt cheap off sierra trade post mm-hmm. it is high quality stuff so i picked up some uh some hiking boots made by a solo a-s-o-l-o and i got them plenty early enough before season start wearing them around got them broken in good and those boots did great for both colorado hunts i had no complaints out of them they they broke in easy I put a lot of miles on those boots. Uh, I changed the insoles out on, and that's it. Yep. And they did good, uh, but eventually they were no longer waterproof. And I found that out the hard way when I went to Montana and got in some snow, mm. which is which is a whole different story. Yep. Which leads me to my second pair of boots, which were made by Vask, and they were sold at REI, and they fit me good, and I needed them to get back on the mountain after I found out my ASOs were no longer waterproof. So <laughs> that was a bad situation. We actually started packing in, walking through the snow, and my feet got wet. I mean, soaked. Mm. And uh, we packed out and drove two hours back to town and bought a pair of boots and then came back to the trailhead. So it was a bad situation. Those vast worked pretty good. They weren't really tall, didn't have enough ankle support for what I wanted. And now I've got a, a pair of Cabela's, uh, the Mendel Denali's. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. Man, I'm loving them so far. Okay. Um, I, w- I was kind of, after I got those Vask, I liked them, but I was in the I was in the market for a little bit stiffer boot and a little bit taller boot. And I'm going on a sheep hunt next year. And I talked to my outfitter up there, and he said, he said, man, I've used all kind of different boots. He said, I keep going back to these. He, you know, he said, as a professional guy, he can get, you know, a season, season and a half out of a pair. He's getting a new pair. But he said they're very comfortable, they break in easy, and, you know, for the amount of hunting that I'm doing out west, or even even if I wear them all the time around the house, he said I'll never wear them out, you Mm -hmm. know. And so far, man, they're very well constructed. Cabela's has got a great warranty on their stuff, too. So if you ever have problems, you can swap them out. So, so far, so good on those, man. And I've heard good things about that pair of boots. And that, that's one thing, though, guys, when it comes to buying boots, uh, like I, I've been running the uh, Loa Tibet um, GTXs, which are a great pair of boots. Um, they're pricey, but that's that's the thing is when you're going out west, it, it's I would spend most of my money in my pair of boots because, like you said, you're always going to be walking. You want something that's going to support you. It's going to be comfortable. You're not going to have foot fatigue, and you're not going to have blisters, uh, right. which is huge. Also, it's, waterproof. It's gotta, yes, it's definitely got to be waterproof. And something else I'd add to that is, don't pick them up the week before you go up there. Yep. Um, pick them up early enough that you can put some miles on them. Walk around in them, you know, just normal going to the store or whatever. Pick them up before turkey season and hunt with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you'll get some miles on them. You get them broke in. You'll test the waterproof if you're turkey hunting. And don't just do that, though. Uh, leading up to season, put a weighted pack on. Walk uphill, walk downhill. Your foot's going to shift and slide in them. If you've got weight on, if you're going uphill and going downhill, and you might find hot spots, places where you may get blisters that way that you wouldn't have normally found walking without weight or just walking on flat ground. So 
just make sure you test them out good before you go because that's man nothing's more miserable than getting up there getting a blister having a hot spot i mean you're on your feet all day and if you got a blister you're not gonna want to be so that's gonna pretty much ruin your hunt yeah and uh, like you're you're 100 correct on that and one thing is Another piece of gear which we've talked about, like on our mule deer hunt, we talked about in a couple episodes back, is that I absolutely love, especially if you're hunting somewhere that's going to have snow, is a good to decent pair of uh, gaiters. Uh, yes, which, definitely. which again, guys, for anyone who doesn't know what that is, it's a piece of, I guess you could almost think of it as like a sleeve, but they normally velcro, and it normally it goes from the top of your boot, it straps to the bottom of your boot, goes all the way up to normally the top of your knee, or the I mean the bottom of your knee. And it's a good pair of them is waterproof, and you gotta make sure they're waterproof because if they're not waterproof, they might protect it from briars and rocks and stuff like that. But it's not gonna help you when you go through snow or creeks. With my setup, with my uh, Loa boots and those, I had bought some cheap gaiters. I bought like twenty five dollar gaiters off Amazon, and I test them, and they were waterproof as heck. And they were ugly gray with a night with a neon green strap on them. And I did I wore the heck out of those, and I went through. Knee-deep creek crossings, no issue, no leaks, nothing. I went through knee-deep snow, no issues at all. And uh, that's, that's it's something that's that's huge, uh, especially if you're going to hunt some place that you're going to have some snow, you're going to have some creek crossings and water. Definitely recommend those two pairs um, to go together, you know, boots and gaiters. But that's kind of cool to see your aspect on that and also also see that you're going to go on a, on a, uh, a sheep hunt. And if I, if I have to ask, are you going on a uh, – is that a doll sheep or what are you going on? Yep, going on a doll sheep hunt in 2019. Awesome, and it's that is an you talk about an awesome hunt right there. That's so cool. Uh, actually, I just got off the phone last night with Andrew and Chad Richard, our buddy Chad. Uh, yeah. We're planning right now to do a caribou hunt in the next five years. So we're, we're starting, oh, that's awesome. Yeah, put back some money on that. Do a drop camp caribou hunt in Alaska. Uh, well, uh, I'll, I've got some information I can email you when we uh, get done with this. <laughs> I've been researching that too. <laughs> awesome, man. Well, hey, we could have a fourth guy on the trip, man. It'd, it'd be fun. But uh, anyways, guys, so that, that's, that's kind of the thing right now. It's just, you know, a Western hunt is a great situation to go on. Is this more about making the time, managing your time, and managing your funds, your funding correctly and your money to be able to make that hunt happen year after year? And, you know, Josh, you've had a pretty good experience with that so far. Um, but, you know, is there any other pieces of gear at all before we get off this topic uh, that you know might be necessary? Uh, I mean, did you find you know, you know, glass to be really necessary at all? Uh, you know, you know, good pair of calls. You know, anything else like that that was necessary? Or pretty much, you know, just wing it on that first hunt with pretty much what you got. Yeah. Well. Yeah. I mean, the the main thing, uh, boots. A good the good base layers. You know, that's another thing we we kind of overlook. But man, good base layers, because you're going to be cool in the morning, most likely, and you're not going to want to stop and take them off midday. So get something that's comfortable, that's going to be moisture wicking. Uh, splurge and get some merino, man. Get you get you some first light base layers, even if you get one pair. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that's that'll help you out, man. Because I know that's something we, in the south we really don't layer up you know it's it's like you wear something light to get to the stand and put your heavy jacket on when you get there and yep. call it good yep and um that that's one thing i would do is, is get a good set of base layers um that good base layers good socks uh that's that's another thing man socks will kill your feet as fast as the boots will so a good pair of hiking socks and again merino wool and some merino base layers 
would really help out. You don't have to have them, but I mean, it's it's something nice. It's not going to kill your whole budget just by buying those few little things, and it'll make things a lot more pleasant for you for sure. Yeah, especially a little shout out about both you know marina wool base layers and everything like that, and then also talking about some of these other gear lists. Another site, guys, other than uh, uh, Sierra Trading Post, is Black Ovis uh, yes, is, is another they're, website. They're very good, and they, they usually have a lot of coupon codes out. Exactly, and I was able to get my boots, which are normally $380 boots, for 270 bucks when they were on sale, uh, which was absolutely huge. I bought my uh, tent off that website as well, uh, which is actually a Sierra tent. And a couple other gear uh, pieces of gear off that site. Great site, lots of coupon codes, like like uh, Josh said, uh, and just a great place to go and kind of look at you know different pieces of gear. Maybe you hear about something on a forum, you're like, oh, let me go check that out and see how much that's going to cost or this or that. It's a great place to go. Um, another thing is if you're looking at Marina Wool, now it's very hit or miss because the way that their company works, but Camo Fire. Yes. Uh, which is a website a slash app. Yeah, they have uh, Black Ovis. Marina wool and sometimes first light, but a lot of us black ovis marina wool they have on there at pretty good discounts, you know, 30 40% off uh, base layers, which is great. Uh, I got a couple of buddies already that's bought some off that site that's I absolutely loved it. Um, again, you know, it's a good piece of base layer. You can wear that down here again in Alabama or, or in the south, wherever you are uh, throughout your deer season. Also, it, it works pretty much anywhere. And also, like I, I can second the good pair of socks. I bought some Marina Wool socks off Amazon, which Marina Wool, thing about Marina Wool, guys, a little quick topic that you know a lot of people don't know about in the South. A lot of people in the South, they wear you know wool socks, but just because it's wool isn't the same as like Marina Wool. And Marina Wool is uh, very, it absorbs a lot of moisture, but also it releases that to let it evaporate. So it keeps your feet very dry, keeps your body very dry. Uh, it, it's unbelievable how well it wickens the moisture off you. And a good pair of Marina Wool socks will save your feet, especially if you're an individual like myself. I'm going to let you know, you know, my feet sweat. Uh, I normally, I'm the kind of guy that could get blisters even in a, you know, good pair of boots that I've worn out pretty well or, you know, uh, you know, softened up. Uh, so Marina wool socks absolutely saved my feet uh, on, on our hunt, and it's something I definitely recommend. I mean, you can buy a pair on Amazon uh, for like 15 to 20 bucks for a pair of three socks, and that's all you need. I mean, to be honest, you pretty much run on a week's hunt, maybe two pairs of socks the whole hunt. Uh, just kind of rotate off, let them dry out and everything. I mean, you kind of just getting through it. But uh, Josh, I know you had a couple different, um, you know, situations you wanted to talk about of how someone could go out there and kind of talk about, you know, the logistics of this hunt, because that's something like I associate, you know, a Western hunt, especially elk, as being a super expensive hunt because they're like, oh, I want to go guided. Or even if they don't go guided, they want to go, you know, public land DIY like ourselves, like I kind of what we've done. Uh, they think it's going to be expensive. So I'd like for you to kind of talk about those two situations you've got and how someone can kind of take a step into elk hunting and uh, do it for a reasonable price. Okay, yeah, that's cool. I, one, one more thing on the, uh, on the gear, uh, I, and I meant, I meant to throw it out there a while ago. So you mentioned a lot of different forums. Um, so you got Archery Talk, Rock Slide, Hunt Talk forums, uh, all those places. Most of those places have classifieds. Man, you can buy some last year's gear used for dirt cheap on there. Mm -hmm. And the thing with that is somebody's already taken that initial hit, bought it new, didn't like it, and they're selling it for half price. Now, if you buy it and don't like it, you can sell it for just about what you bought it for in most cases. So... Man, don't be afraid to buy any uh, any used gear. You know, if you find something you do need, 
I'd hop on one of those websites and check it out. You know, they've all got classified ads. I've picked up a ton of gear off of there. So if, you, if you're looking out for your budget, man, that's another, uh, another way to go. Oh, yeah. I'm a, I think that's a really good topic. Like you said, uh, you know, don't be afraid to get some used gear. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of gear that you could get that would be good use. Like, backpacks are one as long as you Oh, know. man, yeah. There's people that swap packs every year, every other year. Yep. And yep. they depreciate pretty good. Not as much as a bow or something like that, but, I mean, packs, you know, a lot of different – A lot of I bought a, a whole water filtration set up for about a third of the cost off of Hunt Talk forums a while back. And, you know, stuff like that, I mean, you can pick up cheap, and it's, it's, as long as it works, it works. I mean, it's not a whole lot, you know, if it if it functions like it's supposed to, then you came out pretty good on the deal. Yeah, exactly. But to kind of jump into our next topic, you know, what are some of these situations that you've kind of thought up about that uh, would be reasonable hunts for someone to go do, especially as maybe like a first elk hunt to really start experiencing the West? So when, when I started talking to... Uh, you and Andrew about this podcast uh, I said man I, I'll, I'll just kind of get a scenario together to show people what it takes so th- uh, these these trips are assuming you have two people going to, to split the drive time, to split the fuel costs, to split lodging you know all that kind of stuff and it's also assuming that you have the gear, it's not any gear cost involved so what I had is a, uh, a Colorado over the counter archery hunt in a wilderness area, starting one Saturday morning, finishing the following Saturday morning. So that's giving you uh, leaving early Saturday morning to drive out there and basically getting home late the following Saturday night. So you're, you're looking at your drive time, your hunting time, and everything. So, and I mapped this out for my house. So we're saying a 20-hour drive. Uh, so you leave early Saturday morning, drive 18 hours, uh, get you a cabin, get you a hotel room right there within a few hours of the trailhead. That's going to let you go through your gear, double check everything while you're still in town and pick up anything else you might have left. That's going to get you one last night's sleep in a good bed. That's going to get you one last hot meal that's not been dehydrated. So... It'll, it'll really have you recharge. After being on the road for 18 hours, you're going to need a good sleep anyway. <laughs> uh, next morning, drive to the trailhead, start hiking. You can set up camp and hunt that afternoon. So that Sunday afternoon puts you hunting or scouting or whatever you want to do. But you're in the woods Sunday afternoon. You got four days of hunting time. Friday morning, you pack out, get to the truck, drive uh you know, four or five hours, hit the hotel, because after being in the woods that long, you're going to want a shower, you're going to want a bed, and you're going to want a hot meal. Oh, yeah. So that's that's what you should surround your hunt with, man. Go in after a, a good sleep and a good hot meal, and, and first thing you do when you come out, that's what you're going to want. Um, then the following morning would be Saturday morning. Leave early that morning and drive on to the house. So th- this situation, this is assuming two people – this is assuming we're taking my truck, which I'm going to say. So when I figure up fuel cost, I'll figure up the national average at whatever my normal mile per gallon is minus two, because you're going to burn some gas on those mountain roads. Mm-hmm. So I'm assuming the national average for regular gas and 12 miles to the gallon is going to put us at $320 
on fuel. You, you can save about $125 a person on lodging. And Colorado over-the-counter tag, $661. So you're looking at just over $1,100 right there. Now, that's not everything. You're going to have to have food uh, for the ride out there. You're going to have to have food while you're there hunting. Um, we always stick back a little bit extra money for processor and a packer. If you get in there pretty deep, one of you gets a, an elk and the other one wants to keep hunting, there's outfitters in the area that have horses and for a fee we'll pack your elk out and take it to the processor for you. So we always stick back a little bit extra money for those two scenarios. But if you went out there with $1,500, you'd probably come home with money still in your pocket. Mm -hmm. So that's a scenario where you could go on an archery hunt. If you catch it right, you're going on a rut hunt in Colorado for 1500 bucks. And like I said, that's assuming it's two people going to split some costs, but you can do it for $1,500. Um, and so that's, that's $1,500 a person just to make sure. A person, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just to be, on, yeah, just to be sure, $1,500 a person. Okay. So what what you typically pay for your whitetail lease in Mississippi, stick that back. Whenever July comes around and it's time to pay your lease, just uh, write yourself that check and stick it in your safe and come September, get on the road. Mm -hmm. uh, so another scenario say you don't want to put up $1,500 you want to go out and see what elk hunting is all about um, you can do a cow elk hunt in Wyoming now we're looking at a roughly 24 hour drive to get there um, you're buying a, a leftover cow tag which is a little bit cheaper than, than going with a bull tag um, and a lot of time these cow tags you're buying them in an area that's a trophy unit for a bull so this is this serves two purposes you're going out there to get your feet wet and you're doing it cheap on a cow hunt but you're also scoping out bull you know the area for maybe coming up you want to come back for a bull you're scoping the area out for that hey do i want to even come back to this place do i want to build points and try to draw this tag so this one kind of combined here so uh, say, you know, 20-hour drive, do the same thing. Get you a hotel, come up refresh the next day, four-hour drive to the trailhead. Uh, this is under the assumption you're just going to hunt from the truck. So get to the trailhead, park, set up camp. You're hunting Sunday afternoon again, four days worth of hunting. You don't have a big pack out because you're hunting at the truck. So you throw everything in the truck, drive you about eight hours, get you a hotel, that leaves you 16 hours drive home on Saturday. Leaves you with a hot meal, getting good and rested up before you go home. Uh, we're looking at per person 325 on food, about 225 on lodging. The tag for a cow in Wyoming on the leftovers 303 dollars. So that's a cheap tag. Um, you're looking at 853 dollars a person. Now, figuring the same incidentals you had on the Colorado hunt, you got to have your meals while you're there your meals on the road uh processor packer something we run into over there that we don't have over here is a lot of toll roads you run into that so stick back a little bit of money for that and 12 around 1250 bucks you just went on a cow elk hunt in wyoming and you possibly uh, scouted out a spot for a bull hunt in a, another couple of years yeah and I, actually i think that 
even on that cow hunt, I think at twelve hundred dollars, I, I think that's very, very generous. I think you could do it. Oh man, you could definitely do it cheaper. So if you're, say you're you're staying, you're camping at the truck, um, bring food from the house. You don't have to buy food. You don't have to buy dehydrated meals, man. Yep. You, you got two people going. Say, all right, I'm I'm covering supper for two nights. You cover supper for two nights. Um, on the ride out, you don't have to stay in the, the best hotel. All you're out there to do is uh, you're going to get a shower and go to bed. You're not worried about anything else. You're not worried about, you know, what kind of TV it's got. If it's got a swimming <laughs> pool, you're there to, to sleep get back on the road. Yep. So, yeah, that is very generous. I mean, you'll come home with money in your pocket for sure. And, and I'll say if you're, if you're too, you know, younger guys that have the energy, me and Andrew drove from, you know, Alabama up to our unit in um, – in Wyoming, and it was a 27-hour drive, and we made it in 30 hours straight. We took a two and a half hour, well, we took a two and a half hour nap in the truck on the way up in Nebraska, and then kept knocking it out. Uh, so that that saves you. That if if you're willing to do that, it'll save you even more money just because you're not That's staying right. at that one hotel. Yeah, you don't you don't have that extra lodging cost yep. going out there. So. so like that 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 was our mindset. We we're trying to save as much money as possible on that hunt once we got out there. Beforehand, you know, I might got to look crazy on gear. Andrew did not, and he forgot he he forgot to get the most important gear, which I think was which was a sleeping pad. And he learned oh, the hard yes. lesson the first night when the ground froze over at five thirty. So, um, but other than that, once we got out there, yeah, I mean, we were trying to save as much money as possible. You know, we were staying in that pretty, you know, not sketchy hotels, but you know, they weren't the you know, they weren't no you know Hilton Garden Inn or anything like that. I mean, it was it was definitely you know I think. We stayed at uh, God, I forgot the name of the this lodge we were staying at, and uh, it was just a funny, funny place. There's a bunch of other elk hunters there, and we were the only mule deer guys. But yeah, I mean, it was all about just trying to save up as much money and save as much money on that trip. And you can make it stretch. I mean, even fifteen hundred dollars on uh, Colorado, I think that's very reasonable. I think you it could, really is. It is. I mean, you can stretch that out some too, and, and get it cheaper. Yeah, and another thing, which you know, talking about food and everything, which is one thing I want to touch on real quick, is me and Andrew. I thought we would eat more than what we would on the on the trailhead. Like you know, you know, we're gonna try to fuel up as often as possible. Try to have the energy. And I was packing. We we average out. I think we had like thirty or we had like twenty eight hundred calories a day. Uh, three. It was really two meals and a, and like a couple bars for lunch. And we had enough food after our hunt to eat on for another week and a half. Okay. It, and we went for it was a it was a five day hunt. You do not need nearly as much food as you think you are when you're going up there and hiking up, or you know whether you're truck camping or if you're hiking in, you can get away with you know very minimal. And, and I'm not trying to like starve you're not starving yourself, but when you're working hard like that, you want a really good meal, but you also want to stay light. Like you'll eat a big meal in the evenings, but other than that, you're gonna try to eat light so you're on your toes the whole time. You're not all you know groggy, you know. You, Anyways, this, this is one of those things that we, we learned and we packed away too much freaking food. Um, Man, it, it's like that with us, and that's one of the notes. So after every trip we go on, uh, there's three of us, most time three of us go on the trip. And after every trip, we kind of do a little write-up on our own. This is what worked, this is what didn't, this is what we're doing different next time. And we do it independent of each other and we basically email it to each other on the same day so we're not skewing our results you know but that's one of my notes was you're not going to eat this much food don't pack that much food in again yep and and it's like you said man you go in prepared you know like 
I know I know how much food I eat when I'm here, and I know I'm going to be in the mountains, and I'm going to be putting out that much more. You know, you're you got to be hungry, right? Well, you're not. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and you're you're sitting here trying to cram all this food down, and you're miserable. So, you know, I, I'd eat in the morning time, eat me a little something, I'd carry me a couple granola bars, things like that, and eat throughout the day. You know, stop and fix me a little something for lunch, and eat a, eat a good supper, but. At the end of the day, man, I'm like, where did all this food come from? Why do I have so much left over? You know, what made me think I was going to eat that much? And, you know, it's you can you can definitely do that. And something else that, uh, that I started doing is a lot of people buy mountain house meals or, or you know, the prepackaged dehydrated meals, which are, which are good. I started dehydrating my own food, too. Um, just experimenting with it, man. You got leftovers one night, and you got a dehydrator. See if it works. Um, you weigh it beforehand, and then put it on the dehydrator and weigh it afterwards. Whatever the weight difference is, that's how much water you put back in it. How hmm. many ounces of water? So, okay, just try it out, man. Uh, I, I made some uh, some chicken and rice soup that dehydrated really good. I had uh, spaghetti one night. I mean. That's something I do on food, which I know we really didn't get on that topic very much. But well, well, let's let's talk about that a little bit because I thought about doing the same thing after the hunt um, because we went up there and we had. I decided. Well, this is I'll, I'll talk about a little bit of our food regimen. My game plan was every morning we were going to have you know a, a, a breakfast. Whether you know one morning we were going to have pop tarts, which is you know great. There you go. You know, oh, yeah. yeah. And then you got, uh, you know, a couple mornings we were going to have instant oatmeal, hot oatmeal, which I love. It's quick and easy, super lightweight. And then, uh, you know, we kind of just rotate back and forth for that for five days. Um, then for lunch, what we decided, what I decided to do, because I kind of handled all the food costs and everything on my end, um, was we were going to do, I was going to do two protein bars, which we did the Nature Valley, like 15 grams of protein, chocolate peanut butter. They're absolutely delicious. Oh, those things are great. Dude, I'm telling you, when you're up on the mountain, you're freaking, you're worn out, man. You eat one of those, it is like, oh my God, it's heaven. It's absolute heaven. But, so we did two, I'd do two of those for lunch, and then uh, add maybe some uh, jerky or trail mix or something like that. And that's where we went overboard, because you literally needed like one protein bar, and that was it. And then, for, right. and then for dinner, what we did was we, we had a total of four mountain houses, two for each of us that we eat on. And what we were, what my game plan was, was uh, use, clean up those packages that, you know, the mountain house comes in and they zip up and everything yeah. and reuse them with our other food, which what we did was uh, Idaho and instant mashed potatoes as our starch and carbs. And then uh, Tyson, uh, either Tyson chicken, that was our like uh, pre-cooked in a bag. And yep. add salt and pepper to it, whatever, and then kind of like make it like a goulash out of it. Uh, or we had a uh, packaged tuna, which is like seasoned tuna, which I'm, I don't even like tuna, but to be honest, I had a taste for it. Like beforehand, I kind of like found a couple of them that I liked that were like pre-seasoned, and uh, that turned out that turned out fine. Um, and that was our that that was fine. The dinner was perfect. We just packed way too much food for a lunch, and that's where we had a lot of extra weight that was not necessary at all. Yeah, and that's that's where it ended up with us too. Most of the time is. You know, I would separate my, my meals out into, like, a Ziploc bag per day, and i just grab that and throw in my pack. And at the end of the day, i take my Ziploc bag out of my pack, and I'm like, you know, where did I eat anything today? Yeah. Or did I just pack that much food? And, yeah, you definitely will, will carry in more than you need. Um, but I tell you what, there's one thing that you'll pack in and you may not use, 
but I pack it in every time because, man, when you get to use it, it's well worth it. I, I, I've got a little container that I fill up with bacon grease, and I've got a little shaker I put some Tony seasoning in, and Ooh. it gets packed in. And whenever you go, make sure you get a small game tag and shoot a grouse or shoot a snowshoe hare. And, man, you fry that up in some bacon grease with some Tony's. I don't know if it's, it's that good or we're that hungry, but that's like the highlight of our trips. <laughs> oh, I, I bet. I mean, I'm sure that would be awesome. But, you know, that's one thing that, you know, a lot of people don't understand is, you know, especially if you're on animals, you, you're not going to want to eat. Believe me, like you have to force yourself to sit down and eat something, uh, especially midday. Uh, if you're glassing bucks or something, if you're going for mule deer, going for elk, and you know, you got some elk bugling, the last thing on your mind is eating. Like, your focus is going to be on drinking something while you're running. So I think a great, good hydration bladder and some and some uh, Nalgene bottles are great. And just, you know, staying on your staying on your feet the whole time. I and mean, that, that's the thing. I mean, to be honest, uh, until later in that evening, that's when our minds start turning towards food. Uh, so I don't know if that's how it was with you guys, but that's definitely how it was with us. Oh, yeah, definitely. And, and you touched on something else good is hydration, man. Um, you know, down here, it's so humid all the time that you really don't, you know, you know when you're sweating and you drink more. Up there, it kind of evaporates quicker, so you don't realize you're sweating as much as you are, and you'll, you'll kind of lose track of it, and it's easy to get dehydrated up there. So I, I, I got a three-liter Camelback, and I'll make sure every time I think about it, I'll take a swig out of it, you know, mm-hmm. making, making dang sure I'm, you know, staying good and hydrated. Which I did the same thing. I bought a three liter Camelback as well, uh, hydration bladder, just for that reason. Because I'm a person, I, I drink a lot of water naturally. Like I, to be honest, I actually love water <laughs> when it comes to drinking it. And um, you know, I, I thought three liters because a lot of guys, if you look look at some of the forms, like you know, two liters is all you need. Like three liters kind of overkill. But knowing me, like how much I drank water and everything. And to be honest, before the trip, I actually had to start like legit not really weaning myself but training myself not to drink as much water because the issue is when you're like if you just drink a lot of water naturally you naturally go to the restroom more you know you urinate and you kind of like dehydrate yourself even quicker because if you stop drinking your body keeps flushing that water out because it thinks more water is coming and then you then you get dehydrated really quickly which is my issue uh so before that hunt i actually had to stop that and legit like you know drink like half as much water as i normally would throughout the day to kind of like train my body like hey don't flush everything that comes into your system, uh, which it helped. But, yeah, I mean, I would kill – dude. when we – the first day we went up, I had my I had my three-liter – I had a three-liter hydration bladder full. Also, I had a, a liter and a half uh, Nalgene bottle with me that was full. By the time we got up to the top of the mountain, after five and a half hours, I had maybe half a liter at the most of water left in my hydration bladder and nothing left in my neoprene bottle. And, dude – I mean, I needed every last bit of it working up there. And, like, I knew – we knew we were sweating, man. It was – I mean, it was about 40 degrees outside. We were down in T-shirts freaking just oh, sweating yeah. our butts off trying to come up this mountain, man, 65 pounds on our back uh, going up. I mean, it, it, it was rough. But it, it's one of those things that yeah, – hydration is huge. And also, you know, while we're talking about hydration, how you go about whether you filtrate it or use uh, tablets, whatever you're doing, make sure you have good water care. That's one thing that a lot of guys don't – really realize and especially hunting the south because most of us taking a bottle of water in taking a bottle of water out no big deal um i definitely would recommend getting a good pump uh filtration device 
Uh, I think the pump's more effective, and it's worth carrying a little extra weight than having like either gravity fed or squeeze fed. And yeah. as backup, I'd carry some of those iodine tablets. To be honest, the iodine does not bother me taste wise. Um, it's just personally like it doesn't bother me. I know some people they can't stand it. To be honest, it was like whatever. It was like it was. It tastes like Kool Aid without the sugar. Personally, uh, and that's well, how. And, and something you mentioned there is have a filter and have tablets. You want to have a backup. Like, there's a lot of things that if there's two people, you can split, you know, if, if you know, cooking stuff. You can split and use the same stove. Uh, you can get a big enough tent. You can split that. But water filtration, you may only use one of them. But if that one breaks, man, you're, you, you're going to need something. So uh, if, if you're going to have two people hunt and you're going to duplicate any one item on your gear list, Make sure it's the water filtration. Yep. Either that or you're going to be walking back to the truck to get more water, and you don't want to do that. Well, to be honest, and depending on what kind of situation you're in how deep you're in, that might not be the case. Uh, yeah. You, you might either be drinking water straight out of the stream, or you might just pass out from deep, being dehydrated. That's right. And, uh, so you want to make sure you uh, make sure you have a backup plan on that. And tablets are good, but they only treat so much water. And depending yeah. on how long you're going to be in there, you might want to last longer than your your water tablets will allow so yep that's where two pumps comes in handy for sure yeah exactly and the pump's worth investment that's one thing that kind of threw me off is like man they're kind of pricey and you're looking at like you know 80 90 dollars to even more than that for like a, a good pump and i'm like man that's, that's a lot of money to have that where like you know iodine tablets are pretty cheap so andrew what we did was he had a a squeeze filter device uh that worked okay i mean it took you know to fill up one Nalgene bottle, which is, you know, a liter, a liter and a half, uh, it, it was taking, you know, probably five minutes per bottle, maybe 10 minutes at the most. And yeah. I, I got impatient one time. I was like, dude, I'm just, just give, me, give me the water. I'm filling it up. And I'm throwing a couple of tablets in there and let it sit for about 15 minutes and then drink that sucker while he was filling up the other bottles. Uh, yeah. Just, just for that aspect of it. But, um, you know, it, it's all different. You know, it's definitely something you need to take care of and really focus on uh, when you're out there because it's something, you know, you're not used to, especially down here. Um, is there any other, you know, gear list or any other thing that, you know, we ought to talk about or whether it comes to food, hydration, camping that you think is important for anyone that's going out there that has not had that experience yet? Well, one, one thing that I would stress is whether it's your gear, whether it's your food, whatever you're hunting with your bow your gun use it before you get there um you you don't want to buy a bunch of new gear and figure out it doesn't work when you get there Mm -hmm. you don't want to use a bunch of gear that you've got now and realize you don't like it when you get out there you know you're used to hunting whitetail and walking to the tree stand and walking back out but you're not used to doing that with a weighted pack you're not used to walking up mountains um with food you're going to be eating a lot different up there you're probably going to be like we talked about you're going to be eating dehydrated meals at some point during the year just make it a point eat those dehydrated meals now if you're not going to eat them at home you're probably not going to want to eat them on the mountain um so that's some things just make sure to test everything and it it doesn't take much to do you know uh just make sure you do it take the time make it a priority to make sure everything works before you get there um a lot of us will go out there and set up a target at 20, 30, 40 yards and shoot just that one afternoon and call it good. Um, you know, practice different angles, practice different yardages, practice oddball yardages, not just a set 20, 30, 40. 
because an elk's not going to stand broadside straight in front of you at 30 yards most likely so you're going to have to take a shot that you probably are not used to taking when you throw your bag target up in the backyard uh if you're going on a gun hunt don't just shoot off a bench rest shoot off a bipod prop up on your pack prop up on your knee Mm -hmm. uh just you know make sure you're comfortable with every aspect of your gear and and make sure you're comfortable with everything that you're putting into the hunt so you get the most out of it um i know leading up to our uh, elk hunt wyoming we shot a lot and we we had a spot we could shoot out to 500 yards and we got very comfortable at 500 yards we shot off a bench we shot off a bipod laying prone whatever well when i shot mine the sagebrush was too tall to use a bipod. By the time we got there, I'd already dropped my pack to, to stalk in, so I couldn't prop up on my pack. I ended up shooting my bull sitting down with my gun propped on my knee, which is something I did not practice. Um, and it worked out for me, but that's just, just it goes to show practice as many different ways as you can. Use your gear as much as you can in as many situations as you can before you get out there. So those little things don't trip you up on your hunt. You don't want it to, there's going to be minor things that happen out there regardless, but you don't want it to be something that you could have practiced or prevented before you got there just by taking a little extra time here and there. Because you can can do these hunts at a decent price. You know, I told you 12 to 1500 bucks, you can do it. But if you scrape throughout the year to put that money back to go on this hunt, you don't want that hunt to be ruined by something that you could have taken an hour here and there throughout the year to, to better prepare yourself for, to ruin the hunt that you saved money all year to go on. Yeah, and to add to that, I think something, especially when it comes to both archery and firearm hunts, whether you're going for mule deer uh, or elk, uh, I'll say those two species because the situation where you'd be hunting in, is one thing that a lot of people don't practice, I, I personally think, especially after watching outdoor television and a lot of other things and just talking to people, when it comes to archery, the aspect is they don't practice holding their bow back long enough because a lot of times you draw on a bull and you cannot get him, your normal time frame, you know, draw back and shoot within fifteen, like 10 to 15 seconds might not happen. It might be a minute, it might be two minutes. It might have to be three minutes before he gives you a sharp opportunity. Or you might have to get to the point where you have to physically let down slowly where he doesn't bust you. And that's one thing that I think a lot of people don't practice. Personally, I don't practice that, and I'll be 100% upfront about that, especially like shooting out tree stands and stuff. That's something I need to practice more so myself is that strength to be able to hold that bow back long enough where you can still take a comfortable shot and not be super wobbly and also be strong enough and comfortable enough to be able to let that bow down after holding it back for a long time without getting busted. Um, Another thing is I don't think people practice a lot of these awkward shots, especially when it comes to archery hunting. Whether you're shooting, you know, from a kneeling position, uh, like one knee down, two knees down, squatting, uh, you know, sitting back on your butt, uh, you know, standing up, shooting around limbs and stuff like that. Especially if you're hunting Colorado, thick, dark timber, you're going to have some awkward shooting positions. Uh, 
I mean, if you watch any kind of outdoor television and you, you see some of these guys, how they're having to shoot around these trees and stuff, I mean, you pretty much have to be very – it looks like you got to be flexible. And that's one thing it, you ought to try to practice. And it's all about trying to get yourself outside of your comfort zone. If you stay inside your comfort zone, you're shooting 20, 30, 40 yards. You're just staying in the backyard, just, you know, feet spread apart like you normally would, just, you know, shooting repetitively. That's fine for muscle memory, but it's not going to help you that much when you're putting these awkward situations and you're trying to overcome these adversities. And same thing with the rifle. Um, you know, like you said, shooting off your pack, shooting off a prone position, whether you're taking bipods or not, shooting off that, shooting off trekking poles if you have trekking poles, and then also shooting at distances of, you know, longer shots than what you might take on an animal. Like, if you think you're a comfortable range that you're going to go on a hunt, like when we went to Wyoming, my comfortable range was 400 yards. Well, you need to be practicing at five, 600 yards to make that shot happen comfortably where you have the confidence to do it, especially in high wind situations and also shooting really steep inclines whether you're shooting downhill or uphill and uh that was one thing that kind of came back to bite me in wyoming was after i lost my rangefinder, was not properly judging a range at my mule deer and at, that's why i had to take three shots at because the first two shots went robert's back um and, and that's just another thing it's just you know you gotta put yourself in these situations and to be honest guys you know we're trying to help you out as much as possible but until you experience it you really don't know what you're getting yourself into but you're gonna enjoy it so that's, that's the yeah, it, thing it's it's when you're there uh, hiking up the mountain, uh, you know, you've been out all day. You're you're trying to get back to camp, and you're tired. And you get back to camp, and you got to stoke up the fire, and you still got to cook supper, and you got to figure out what you're doing the next day. And you'll sit there and say, "Man, what am I doing? You know, why am I doing this?" And then when you get in the truck to head home, you're already planning your next hunt. It's just just something about it, you know. It's a, it's a different kind of fun. It's miserable at the time, and it's fun at the same time. And and once you do it, you're, you're going to go back. As, as Remy Warren says, embrace the suck, embrace the suck factor, because on that hunt, you're going to have to embrace the suck, but afterwards, no, okay, I'll give you a great example. And he, he said this one time, and I, I, I repeat this all the time to people. No one ever remembers the comfortable times in life. If you went on some vacation and like, oh, yeah, my bed was so comfortable, man. It was great. You remember the crappy parts of life and these miserable points that you kind of came through it. Whether, say, go back to sports, whether you're playing football back in high school or whatever, and you had to go do two a day or something, and that brotherhood of going through that miserable workouts in the hot sun, that's what you remember. You don't remember the good times when you're like, oh, yeah, they had some Gatorade and all this kind of stuff and, you know, whatever, like, you know, practice was easy. You remember the hard, tough stuff in life. Same thing on these hunts, guys. You know, you're up there in the mountain, and, like, that first day, I'm like, dude, why the heck did we come out here? This is absolutely miserable, like, like, dude, like, I, like, was not going to be put, you know, uh, you know, turn in the towel or anything, but definitely was like, dude, what are we doing up here? But after the hunt's over, whether you're successful or not, you're like, man, that was absolutely awesome. Like, I just experienced something that very other, very few other people that I know in my life could, you know, even come close to saying they've done something like that. And that's what we look for. And personally, I'm all about adventure. I'm all about doing something different, doing something new. And, you know, going out there and just trying to make it happen. And, you know, that's what going out west can really, you know, that's something you can accomplish and go do that. Um, So, you know, kind of get off that soapbox. Um, Well, do you have anything else, Josh? I know we kind of ran a little long in this episode, but I think it's a lot of great information. But do you have anything else uh, you want to touch on before I ask my last question? One more thing uh, I want to throw out there. I'm going to plug BHA here. Okay. Um, So... A lot of the stuff I was talking about, you you can do by yourself, but you really don't want to. Uh, and it, it's a lot easier to split the drive, split expenses, you know, split the load if you're hauling something out. And 
anybody close to you that you know that hunts that wants to go on one of these hunts there's man backcountry hunters and anglers is full of people that love doing this stuff that we're talking about and i guarantee you you could go on the uh, southeast chapter facebook page right now and say i want to go on an over-the-counter archery elk hunt in colorado this september i'm gonna buy a tag does anybody want to split the, the expenses with me and you'd get somebody that said they did yep. from your area you know so that's another thing if you don't know anybody that wants to go don't let that hold you up man find somebody there's people out there that are are the same way you are saying i would go if i had somebody to go with so if you're in that boat and they're in that boat man y'all get together um my and i'll I'll, kind of expand on that so when i my first trip out there i was on archery talk they got a western hunting forum on archery talk and there was a guy that brought that same thing up he's like hey I like to go out west, but I don't know anybody to go with. And somebody chimed in. They were like, I see you live in my state. Would you like to meet up and see about doing this? And I threw on there. I was like, I'm in Mississippi, and I'd love to do this, but I don't know anybody. And somebody jumped on and said, I'm going to shoot you a message. And we got on the phone started talking, and my wife still makes fun of me because of this. So we started talking. This was right around turkey season. And, uh, one one morning, I, uh, I, or one night, I told my wife, I'm going to go hunting in the morning. She's like, oh, uh, who are you going with? I said, Jonathan. He's like, she said, well, I don't know Jonathan. I said, yeah. So <laughs> I met this guy on the Internet, and, uh, <laughs> and we're going turkey hunting in the morning, and we might go elk hunting in September. She was like, wait a minute. So you've got some stranger yep. coming oh, yeah. to my house <laughs> in, in the wee hours of the morning to and, and y'all are going to head off into the woods in the dark with guns, and you've never met this guy. I was like, well, it's really creepy when you put it like that, man. But uh, <laughs> So, yeah, and and still to this day, man, we that's who I hunt with. Mm-hmm. Um, it's me, one of my buddies I grew up with, and, and him, and that's who we hunt with out west. We're playing an antelope trip right now. He didn't make Wyoming with us last year. And that's just because he moved to Montana and he had more tags than three people could feel. So he, he was tied up in Montana last year. But uh, he's making the drive to Wyoming this year. And, I mean, that's so, – so don't let that hold you up, man. There's, there's people out there just like you wanting to do the same thing. Uh, and I, I know I threw the plug out for BHA because there's a lot of like-minded people out there. And uh, there's a lot of people in the southeast chapter that would love to go out west and hunt. Some of them have already been there and have a lot of gear and a lot of expertise and might not mind you tagging along with them. So yeah. I, I definitely do that. I would not let that hold me up from going. Well, yeah, and fun fact, uh, something I just also realized, all four uh, interviewers we've had for this series are all BHA members with the uh, – with you know, be, with backcountry hunters and anglers, three of them being part of the southeastern chapter, which has been you know huge for us. And like you said, you know that's a great resource to reach out to find people that are like-minded like you that wants to do hunts like that. Um, actually, I saw a guy that posted on the uh, southeastern chapter page about uh, you know who's all going out west, and a guy was like, you know, I'm going to go to Colorado, but I'm looking for someone else to go with me. And I I tagged with my buddies on there, uh, Greg Broadway. Uh, and, and, you know, he, he's been trying to talk to him a little bit about doing that hunt. But uh, talk, speaking about, you know, meeting, like you, how you met Jonathan, and, you know, the first time you were going to kind of like meet the guy in person, you were going on a hunt. Andrew was kind of the same way with me. I met him through Facebook through that, and now we're freaking pretty, like, dude, I, t- I told I told his uh, girlfriend that uh, 
I asked her, I'm like, hey, t- uh, Tiffany, can uh, can you handle Andrew being in two significant relationships? Because because uh, I'm, I'm one of them, by the way. And, dude, she got so pissed. But it's just because, you know, me, me and him are close, dude. I probably call him to talk something, whether it's, you know, about the podcast or about work or about something, probably once a day, easily. Uh, oh, yeah. Just about whatever's going on. And uh, it's like people like that is who you find into. I met my buddy Greg in uh, North Carolina. I found out through him through one of our other pages, uh, Running Gun Whitetail Hunters. And the first time I ever met him, we went scouting on his farm up there uh, while I was up there for work. And it was awesome meeting people like that. And, of course, other guys I met through BHA, same similar things. I mean, kind of like you. You know, first time I met you was up in Nashville, which was a good time. Uh, And it's just stuff like that. It's just really cool to find people that are from your area that are – like-minded as you and want to do similar things uh kind of like us doing our caribou hunt uh chad richard uh who's part of you know the bha crew uh and on the board for the southeastern chapter uh you know he wants to go with me and andrew to uh to alaska do that hunt and it's just stuff like that i mean where else are you going to find somebody in the south that's like yeah i'll go i'll go to a caribou hunt let's do it no you're you're not going to find that you're not going to walk into freaking you know, Dick Sporting Goods or Academy or Field Insurance Bass Pro Shop. But hey, yeah, you want to go to a caribou hunt? The guys like they'll look at you like you're crazy. Like no, we hunt white t- we hunt whitetails and turkey. That's about it. Yeah, that, that's a reindeer, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're right. So that's, it's, it's, just, it's just cool to find people like that. It's just you know getting like minded. It wants to have some cool adventures. Because again, I'm all about hunting. You know, hunting and having adventures. Just because you live in the South, don't mean you have to just hunt whitetails and deer. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that, but or I mean, whitetails and turkey, nothing wrong with that. But it's always good to branch out, do something different, and you know, have those adventures. But you know, before we kind of finish up this episode, I got one other question I got to ask you, Josh. All right. What is? Or okay, I'm, I got two questions. I'm sorry, I got two questions now. Number one, what advice would you give to a new hunter going out west for an elk hunt? Um. So one thing, a lot of people will watch YouTube videos, they'll read up on forums, and they'll think they've got it all figured out. And the main thing you'll see on there is guys that are like, okay, I'm packing five miles into this wilderness area, I'm going to stay for two weeks, and I'm coming out with an elk. Your first trip out there does not need to be like that. Um now, there's a chance that you would bust out a five-mile pack in into a wilderness area and stay by yourself for two weeks just fine. But chances are you're not for your first trip. So have realistic expectations. You know, find a place a couple miles in, have a plan B in case that's not going to work for you, in case it's crowded and you have to come out and go somewhere else, in case you get altitude sickness. Just be realistic. Don't don't go into it thinking you're going to do it like they do on the hunt shows. Um, you'll run into elk that are not going to be vocal. You'll run into people. You'll you'll run into gear failure. You'll run into altitude sickness. You'll run into a lot of different things. So go into it with a, a realistic view that something is probably going to go wrong, and odds are I'm not going to kill an elk. So, and I'm not saying that to be negative, but if you look at the if you look at the harvest odds in a lot of these over-the-counter units, they're 10, 15 percent odds. You're coming from halfway across the country trying to pinpoint where this animal's going to step. So, just be realistic before you go out there. 
so you're not disappointed when you get there. You know, I think, and your next trip out there, you'll know a lot more than you knew going into that one. And you will, I mean, it's it's a good, it's a quick learning curve, you know. Mm-hmm. It'll teach you fast. So, you know, just go out there being realistic and learn from your mistakes and, and it'll it'll help you in the long run. Yeah, and I, I agree. So I think that's a great point. And for my final uh, question, I just got to ask you, why should a southerner or someone back east go hunt elk in your opinion uh, well it's something you can't do around where we live it'll get you out of your comfort zone it'll get you into places that you will never see otherwise it'll it'll push your limits it'll test you mentally physically and it's it's just something that you you should do man it's uh it, I don't know, it's, it's hard to explain, but once you do it, you'll know why you needed to do it. Um, you know, if, if you're used to going out, and, and even if you're hunting public land for whitetails, it's tough, but it's a whole different kind of tough. And and once you get out there and really push yourself, find your limits, you're going to learn so much about yourself. You're going to learn so much about the outdoors, the, the reason that you hunt, man, it'll... It just changed your outlook on things. So, um, if you ever want a western hunt, there's no more western hunt than an elk hunt, and that'll kind of set the stage for, you know, for any future western hunts. It'll it'll teach you a lot, and I don't know, man. It's just something you got to do to know. I guess it's hard <laughs> to explain, but once you get out there, it's going to get in your blood. So, be prepared for that. Yeah, you're 100 percent right on that, and I I couldn't have said it any better. But uh, I appreciate you, Josh, uh, coming on and, you know, kind of making this happen, giving a true Southerner's aspect of an elk hunt and, you know, what it takes to do that. And also, you know, giving some great advice for how we all can be able to make that hunt happen, especially at a reasonable price, like we talked about earlier, and be able to do that multiple times. I mean, again, it doesn't have to be a once in a lifetime hunt by no means. I mean, you've already gone on, you know, four hunts. I'm sure you've got a ton of other you know elk hunts you know you're wanting to go on in the future oh yeah man i've got uh so i've got antelope this year i've already got sheep planned for next year and i've already got elk planned for 2020 and uh i'm, I'm working on 2021 already so yeah it's it's a sickness <laughs> yes yes it is and that's another thing guys i mean Oh, you just you just gotta go. You just gotta go once. Whether like like what we've talked in this series, whether you're going for whitetails, antelope, mule deer, or of course elk, whatever you're gonna go for, just just do it once, and you, you'll see what we're talking about. Uh, you, you'll get bit by the bug, and you'll be talking to all your other buddies and going with you next year. <laughs> but uh, appreciate you, Josh, man, coming on and again, just making this happen. It's, it's been a good time talking to you, catching up. Uh, we'll definitely have to meet up sometime soon, whether, you know, it's at our uh, next BHA event or whatever it happens to be. Uh, we'll have to meet up and, uh, you know, just have a good time, brother. But, again, I appreciate you coming on, and I hope you have a great rest of your season uh, throughout the summer, and I uh, hope you can uh, get a little scouting in maybe uh, for some whitetails and maybe hear how you're doing this fall. But, uh I appreciate it, Josh. Hope you have a great evening, brother. Sounds good, man. Appreciate you having me on, and uh, good talking to you, and I look forward to talking to you some more in the future.
All right, guys, we're starting to get kind of close to summer here. And you know what my favorite part about summer is? The Mobile Hunters Expo. Y'all heard us talk about it a lot last year, and we actually got to meet a lot of you guys at that expo. Well, we're excited to announce we're going to be there again. This time it's going to be in Dalton, Georgia, June 28th through June 30th. We are going to be there all three days. We're going to have a bunch of past podcast guests there. We're going to have a booth where you can come by and grab some merchandise. And I'm sure we're going to be recording all kinds of podcasts there. If you're unfamiliar, the Mobile Hunters Expo is the place you need to be if you are the kind of hunter that listens to this podcast this show was literally made for you it is an excellent group of people that are going to be there a lot of whitetail killers from around the southeast are going to be there you're going to get to talk to them shake their hand learn from them in person make some connections and guys we get a lot of questions about hey, which saddle should i get which tree stand should i get what about this piece of gear what about that piece of gear how do I meet other hunters who want to hunt the same way that I do? You know, finding a good hunting buddy. The Mobile Hunters Expo is a place for all of that. So you guys don't miss it. June 28th through the 30th, Dalton, Georgia. We'll see you there.